Welcome, welcome. You're listening to our podcast, Two Massage Therapists in a Microphone. My name is Mark. I'm a registered massage therapist, registered kinesiologist here in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. We've got a real cool guest on her phone. She does a whole bunch of things. I know she does a whole bunch of things because she sent me her bio. That's a whole that bunch of things. She does a whole bunch of <laughs> fucking things. So let's let's see where this takes us today. Yes, let's. Hey, everyone. It's Amanda. And we're speaking to Michelle over the phone. Some of you probably know her, especially if you're interested in the perinatal world, because that is really her niche market and part of what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, so she's an RMT specifically for prenatal, postpartum women, and I guess infants as well. We'll get into that. And uh, she's also an educator. So we might talk a little bit about that as well. Um, I'm not going to do much of an introduction for Michelle. I'm going to let her do it because as Mark said, there's so many things and I will miss them. I needed a checklist. So Michelle, thank you for being on the phone with us this morning. And uh, we're all before, just giggling. No, before before you tell us about the billion things you do, can, can I ask you a question? Are you for, are you of age to be familiar with In Living Color? I am so of age are to you be familiar so with are color. you familiar with the Headleys? Yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you doing a million things makes so much sense to me right oh, now. Oh <laughs> my gosh, it totally does. And I think that is partly a cultural thing, I have to say. But That just um, went over yeah, so many I've, people's heads, yeah, by I the think, way. I That's think, amazing. I think, I'll let you, I think I'll let you bring everyone up to speed on what we were just talking about with that. I was like, oh my gosh. Okay, well, well, the whole idea of doing a million things and, you know, the person who has, I mean, I'm thinking about a combination of skits from different, from different shows especially from the 90s in terms of having like 10 jobs and 20 jobs and <laughs> how many jobs but like ten job. I mean I have 10 jobs you know <laughs> anyway this is so funny Pe- people are gonna be like wow I didn't even know she was Jamaican but that's another fact that's not on my bio that probably should be there parents are both from Jamaica born here and raised in Toronto and I'm just going to go into more of what I do because I don't even know how much time we have to talk and I'd love to connect with you guys. I couldn't wait to be on this podcast with you guys. We've got lots of time, Michelle. So why don't you start right at the beginning, give everybody an introduction about yourself, uh, how long you've been in practice and sort of how your practice has evolved and where it is today. Okay, awesome. So I'm Michelle Francis-Smith and as you heard from the that first part of the the introduction, I'm an educator. I'm an RMT since 2001, so I'm getting close to my 20-year anniversary. I'm a graduate of Sutherland Chan and have also followed up a pretty big teaching career with them for 17 years. I was teaching with them and also doing coordinator work and student services work. Uh, also been doing that teaching work at Centennial. And amazingly, in 2017, I found myself the principal of the International Medical Massage Therapy Institute in India, where I did uh, kind of like an in and out, five weeks on, a few weeks at home, uh, a few months at home, then like six more weeks in India, and was a part of an amazing project that was running there for a few years. So um, my passion, my absolute passion has been treating women who are pregnant and supporting them into the postpartum period, as well as treating their children. I have an extra soft spot for women who are carrying a child who has some sort of known disability or special need. So they've gotten some sort of genetic screen that maybe tells them that they'll have a baby with a special need. I'm part of that club. My second daughter has Down syndrome, and I learned that while I was pregnant. And uh, that had a huge impact on me during my pregnancy, but absolutely has shaped and influenced my focus as an RMT sort of after 2006 when she was born. I'm realizing that there was a whole area 
where women could receive not only my massage therapy support, but they could also receive that compassion, understanding, um, and a space to really vent, be fearful, be overwhelmed, and like heal the trauma of learning that news and what it means for them and their families. So it's been like quite a journey um, doing all those things. And uh, because I'm in education and because I love to talk and communicate and connect with people, that also led to uh, starting to write as a massage therapist, being, you know, in a few magazine articles and then later on, more recently, publishing a book, You Have So Much Potential inspiring generational healing and transformation, where I connected up with 30 other health pros. And we shared stories of our kind of resilience, how healing has affected our lives personally, not just as being in the role of healer, and how much we have been inspired by the people who have been on our table, the people who have trusted us to care for them, the people who have told us some crazy stories, some painful stories, some real triumphant stories, and how much that has kind of pushed us forward through burnout, through our own loss, through illness, through all kinds of shit. So that's a little bit about a lot about me. I was about to say, yeah, that's the perfect way to describe that introduction. That's a little bit about a lot of you. And we could take this in so many different directions. Um, I know Mark's probably got questions because I can see it in his face. But I, I did want to ask you about um, getting news uh, from genetic screening while pregnant. Um, I also mm-hmm. have a huge, huge, huge love for treating prenatal clients. And um, I've worked with quite a few women who have, you know, heard some things that, you know, you always think like, this isn't going to happen. This isn't going to happen to me. Everything's going to come yeah, back normal. Definitely. And mm-hmm. um, I want to talk a little bit about that. You know, what sort of goes through your head as a mother, how it might have affected the rest of your pregnancy? Like, are you okay talking a little bit about your personal experience I, with that? Absolutely. What What are we if not to talk about our actual? Yeah, I, I want I kind of want to start there since your niche is prenatal. And this is a huge one. Like I said, I've had people come in and tell me, you know, I just found out this or, you know, baby's head mm-hmm. is measuring small or baby's too large or that you know these things seem like when you when you hear somebody else saying it as an outsider it's like okay well that doesn't mean necessarily mean anything bad but when you are the person getting that news Mm -hmm. this Mm -hmm. is huge so why don't you yeah tell us a little bit about that experience for you sure and this is also one of the things I ended up sharing as one of my stories in the book um But for me, when I was on that examination table at 20 weeks, which is a common time for women, at least in Ontario, to have that anatomical scan, it's Mm -hmm. when you are being told, you know, are the bones measuring appropriately? Is the brain developing well? Are the organs in the right place? Blah, blah, blah. I had already gone through that with my first baby and everything was so textbook, very smooth. I call it my princess pregnancy (laughs) because everything was just like tickety-boo. Everything was great. And then here I was on the table for like almost two hours holding that pee because, you know, you have to come with a full bladder and people are coming in and out, in and out, in and out, looking at the screen, going away, whispering, coming back. And I knew something was wrong. And all the while they say nothing to you. Yeah, they They say say nothing nothing to you. And they can't because they're the technicians. They are Mm -hmm. not the actual doctor. So, of course, by law, they can't tell you. But their expression. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. We know that they can't tell you anything. But in those moments what do you want to hear? Like, what do you want them to tell you? 
do you really want them to tell you anything or are you just i don't know i'm just asking as a I dude totally, who doesn't understand this I, <laughs> I think because we're medical professionals too i understood that i knew they couldn't technically tell us anything or tell me anything but what i would have appreciated is acknowledging i know you've been on the table for a long time mm-hmm. i definitely i i'm i'm seeing something that i need to get more information about but remember they don't know who I am on the table. I'm just number, you know, 125 of the day. So they don't know that, you know, I'm not a lay person who has this information to be able to at least bracket. That would have made a huge difference. The first thing I probably would have asked is, can I go pee though? Because I was going to wet myself on that table. I, so I that have was to, one of the most uncomfortable yes, things. I have to say, right? I, I legit have like PTSD <laughs> from those two hour scans because both of my kids, Ooh. I was on the table for uh, two plus hours. And the really? second time, yeah. And you know what? It wasn't because of any any abnormalities. They were, they were seeing things. My kids were just not cooperating and they couldn't get the images they needed. Because <laughs> they're fucking uncooperative yeah so have have they remained that way no they're they're actually like little unicorn babies that are very very well-behaved little girls but yeah no they were they were one of them was bouncing all over the place the other one like wouldn't move it was but i'm telling you the second time i was in tears and the tech said to me okay i'm gonna let you relieve yourself a little bit but I don't want you to fully empty your bladder. And I was like, what? And that's like crazy thing. Are you telling me? So she said, you can pee, but a little bit. I'm like, okay. okay." Mm -hmm. I I remember that too. (laughs) But yeah, so in in one, you're already anxious. You're very uncomfortable. Um, I remember that too. And I I think I've blocked it out because it ended up being nothing. But I did go for one scan where I don't know if it was that they couldn't see something or they thought there was like a dark spot and they couldn't tell. And so I had to actually come back in a second time um, just Mm -hmm. to confirm something. And it was the same thing where it was like a lot of looks and glances, but nobody was saying anything to me. And finally, I just said to the tech when we were alone in the room, I said, I completely understand that you can't tell me anything but can right. you be compassionate for one second and realize that i'm freaking the fuck out over here yeah and yeah, uh something yeah and tell she just looked something. at me and she said everything is okay you will be okay yeah i'm like okay yeah all right thank you and that was i mean it she wasn't really telling me anything you know that there wasn't necessarily a concern it was just everything will be okay you will be okay yep. like, okay yeah and, right. <laughs> and actually she was telling you which is great because i do remember in my first and third pregnancy i did get that you know, okay, well, you're done. Things look good. It's like they just sort of sneak that in there. But when things don't look good, they're saying nothing. There's like, they're trying to be like stone faced, but I could see her eyes. She was like peering at the screen. And, you know, then we fast forward to actually getting the results of that scan, you know, the torture that was the in-between period. Mm -hmm. You know, I still remember, she's 14 now. I still remember going to the midwife for that appointment, my husband, Dwayne and I, and us sitting there and her telling us what she thinks she's seeing. And then, you know, if you want to get this confirmed, you need to do an amio, which would be high risk for loss. Right. If we did the amio and and letting us know our options. Now I'm like 25 weeks pregnant and she's saying, well, by law, I need to tell you that if you want to terminate at this point, you still can. If we do the amnio and it's positive that there is Down syndrome or there is this other genetic. Was um, that was that ever anomaly. an option for you as a, your family unit? It, it wasn't. Um, it, this wasn't an option for us. And, and Dwayne and I had spoken about, well, what if we find out, like, I don't know what we could find out exactly. Um, but what if we find out there's something going on? And we both said, we created this baby. We absolutely tried for this baby. You know, our first and our third were like complete 
miracle surprises. And our second baby was this planned out after the princess pregnancy, time for another child. And we said it, this baby was made in love and we'll just leave it as that. Mm-hmm. Whatever's meant to be is meant to be. And um, we both felt that we would just f- find the support and and garner support from our families and friends and deal with whatever came. And that's what it was. We went on a bit of a roller coaster in there because we didn't do the amnio. So it was almost conclusive, but it wasn't conclusive. So there was a point where it was more than likely that she would have Down syndrome, but they couldn't tell us. And I'm still pregnant and I'm still working at Women's College Hospital for Sutherland Chan, um, uh, teaching massage therapists how to treat high risk pregnant women on the ward while pregnant with this baby that I don't know what the situation is. Um, I'm still teaching the subject. I'm still treating pregnant women in my practice. It was like pregnancy was all around me and I was facing something that I didn't have any of the tools. I didn't, there was no Facebook groups 14 years ago. There was no program like the one I've created now for women who are going through this. I actually have a 10 week program that I've created online. There wasn't any of that. So I was sort of like this this imposter, right? Like I looked healthy, pregnancy look everyone's like, "Oh, you look great and you're teaching and you're oh, and you're so lucky, you're healthy." All those women in the hospital beds, yet I'm looking at them thinking, "You have no fucking idea." No idea. The pain I'm in right now. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know what's happening. You don't know the stress that I have at home when I'm with my younger daughter who's 2 and I'm trying to be full of energy and positive for her. Yet, I don't feel so positive. I don't feel so joyful. I don't, you know, I'm exhausted and stressed. Yeah. And you have this giant question mark the entire time because you don't really know what to expect. Do you think, I know that Mark and I have had this conversation and I've had this conversation with other friends um, who have been pregnant. And do you think it would have been easier for you? Had you had conclusive answers or do you think it really wouldn't have made much of a difference in in the way you were in your pregnancy? <sighs> Big question. You know, because we had come to a place where for us, we weren't intending to do anything deliberate regarding the pregnancy. It was just going to be what it was. Mm-hmm. If it didn't, if it didn't continue on its own, it didn't continue on its own. Knowing more didn't help. Right. Because we felt that when she's born, it'll be clear what her designation is, if there is one. And then we can go from there. At that point, they were at least able to tell us it's likely Down syndrome if there's something. So it wasn't like there was no idea of what it could be, which does happen for a lot of women. I know women in the groups that I'm in and and who I support, who that is their situation. It's, it's, it's like multiple things look like they're wrong or not um, progressing in the right way. So for them, it's a little different. Mm-hmm. We weren't dealing with something like, I have friends who they they were told, you know, the heart is malformed or the brain isn't, like there's not even much of a brain there. So if you have this baby, A, they, it probably won't survive very long. And if it does, that baby will likely be in a hospital for the rest of its life. There's not, There's no taking your baby home. That wasn't my story. And so for those women, like that decision is even, I feel even more difficult Mm -hmm. just sitting from where I was. At least I knew as a medical professional, I had seen people in the world who had Down syndrome. I didn't know them personally, but I saw them out upright living a life. Right. 
doing things, going to school. So I thought, well, okay, that, that could be possible for my child. I don't know what level of effect they're going to have, if, but that could be possible for, for this child to then basically become like a PhD in, in Down syndrome, which is trisomy 21, the tripling of the 21st chromosome and, and all the different ways it could appear and, and just trying to find out all the support in my community that existed, which there is a ton for Down syndrome, actually world yeah. ra- world round, so worldwide. So that that did make a difference in terms of just feeling like we'll be able to handle this. It's not going to be easy, and that's you know ultimately where we ended up. It wasn't pretty though. No, I can imagine, and and like you said, with something like Down syndrome, you know, I mean, I actually I went to a high school that. Um, had uh, special programs for uh, for the students with special needs. So I had a lot of classmates um, who had Down mm-hmm. syndrome and, you know, I would interact with them every day. And like you said, you know, they're they're out, they're in school. They're do- like, I think that that it, I want to say this without sounding insensitive. I'm not being insensitive. It's, it's sound, it seems it. like something like uh, finding out that your child might have Down syndrome doesn't seem as severe as some of the things that it could have been. Like, it sounds like Mm -hmm. you and your husband were very positive about it because as you said, you realize, well, this isn't a death sentence. You know, we might Mm -hmm. need some extra support and we, you know, we might need to look into what needs our child is going to have, you know, as she gets older, but doesn't mean that she can't have a full life. So, I mean, you guys took a very positive approach to it. Still being difficult, though, having this question mark and not knowing what was going to happen. And like you said, there's varying degrees when when it comes to something like that. And you didn't know what you were going to have to deal with, but you guys were ready to deal with it and ready to find the support. Right. Yeah. So that that roller coaster was exactly it. That was it in the you know, in that moment of hearing it, it was like, we'll deal with it. And then the dark period came where I'll be honest, and he knows that I share this openly because he shares it too with other dads and people going through it. He went through a period where he was really removed from me and he was really removed from the baby and he felt responsible. He thought somehow he had caused this to happen. And me being a medical professional, of course, knew, <laughs> you know, this you is did cells. not cause this. Yeah. These are cells multiplying. It just, you know, there's no, you know, he was, there was something I must have done wrong. There's, there's, you know, there's things I'm being punished for there. There was all of that going on for a period of time. And it did really impact our marriage. Like we, we definitely nearly almost split up in that first year of her life. Honestly, you almost have to think like that a little bit. It, it sounds so, it sounds so stupid what I'm going to say, <laughs> but I'm just going to say it. You almost have to think like that a little bit, because if you're going to sit back and, and thank a divine being for all of the goodness that happens in your life. Then when something when something happens that is unforeseen, that is going to be yes. that is going to be a struggle for you. Then you have to also think, fuck, what the hell did I do? Like I must have done do? something here. Like you can't have one Absolutely. without the other. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. It, so, d- so it depends natural. on what type of spiritual person you are. You could also be the type of person thinking this child was brought to me because I am the right person to take care of this baby. Mm-hmm. I am the right person mm-hmm. to deal with these challenges. Somebody else might not. Are there really people like that? There's lots of people like that. Are they real? So are they they're, they're very real people. Really? <laughs> really? Michelle might be one, one of those people. There you're, you're you go. One of those. People. Okay, so, so you, like, so you're both one of us. Both of us have a similar faith. So okay, perfect. Are Christians and we we responded differently. And I didn't know that my faith was actually coming in. I realize it now in hindsight, what was going on, but it's also like our personalities are different. I'm like the ultimate optimist and he can, he can be that ultimate pessimist. Right. So I eventually, when I deal with a trauma, very quickly, I start seeing the silver lining and the lesson. And I don't know if it comes from the education background. I don't know if it just comes from the shit I've been through in my life. 
but I go there very quickly. Is it hard for you or is it easy for you to be the ultimate optimist? Is it something you work on or that's just natural for you? It's very natural. It's actually easier than than staying in the negativity. The staying mm. in the negativity, I become like glue, like I'm Im- immobile. I can't see my three. I, I claw my way out and I build. I'm a builder and I'm a grinder. So I have to keep moving. And by being optimistic, there's potential, there's possibility, right? And if there's possibility, then I'm not stuck. I'm not, I'm never stuck, even when I'm in a stuck position. So you being the optimist, I know this is, this is going to be a really strange question. And if you want to, (laughs) if you want to dodge it, go right ahead, because you're also a healthcare professional. You're also an educator, but you're also a human being. And so Mm -hmm. because you're so optimistic and deciding to, to, to take on what you've done and, and, and go forward with everything, how do you Mm -hmm. feel about people that choose the alternate route? Mm. No, I'm glad you're asking me that question because my answer is the same as a person and a professional. So that, that makes it easy. Maybe if the, the answers were different, I would have a hard time answering it. So I will be very, very transparent and even share right here and right now that, you know, when I was younger, I made a choice to abort a baby. Mm-hmm. I've never said this publicly in my life. People closest to me know that. Um, I was in a time in my place where I definitely didn't feel like I was ready. I was very young and I was in a loving relationship, but I felt like it was, it was going to have a very negative impact on myself and the person I was with. And so I, I personally am not someone who's saying this is right or wrong. Here I was now in my loving marriage, had a baby and expecting, wanting to have another one planned this absolutely would not even have occurred to me as the choice that would be appropriate for us, for me, mm-hmm. for my life, for that life. And then actually I felt like, man, I'm a mother of one already. Maybe I can really do this. Maybe it would have been a different conversation if it was our first baby, right? I can never go back in time to kind of compare. If it was our first pregnancy, would we have felt like too scared and like we're not prepared? Or was it because... It was the second. I had been in in our profession longer. I had felt more confidence in myself as a woman to be able to figure it out. I don't know, but I thank God that the choice was what it was because Desiree is so amazing. I was actually just, I'm obviously waiting for you to finish that answer, but I just started to think like every parent I know, every friend I know who has a child with special needs, it's like, the the word is act special. It actually like fits so well. Like every single one of them are like, you have no idea how incredible <laughs> it is to like because they think differently. They're, I mean, every yeah. every every child with special needs has different needs and you know um, different uh, personality traits and whatever. They're you know there's people. It's not like oh every person with Down syndrome is like this and every person who mm-hmm. has autism is like this. But every one of my friends or clients who have a child with special needs, they're like it is like the most incredible thing. Challenging, yes, but just amazing because every milestone, every accomplishment, you're like fuck yeah like look at you look at you oh it's amazing gosh. because like there's parent pride no matter who your kid is for sure right you have that pride and that excitement when they accomplish things or or they meet a challenge and they they achieve it but things like just being able to roll over when you have low muscle tone with a baby with down syndrome and this comes right. with a lot of other special needs situations low tone in the in the muscles is is a big thing yeah them being able to eat independently um lift their head so Desiree was born on the higher functioning scale. 
mm-hmm. for Down syndrome. So it actually wasn't confirmed until she was almost nine weeks postpartum that she even had Down syndrome. Because in her performance, her APGAR score, which is the score they take right after the baby's born, she scored normal, typical. And she was lifting her head up. And she was uh, breastfeeding right away on her own. And she was sleeping through the night after, you know, a few weeks. Like it was, she was this magical being. And so even in our heads, we thought there's nothing going to be wrong here. There's not going to be anything because look, look how she's performing. And so when we did get the news, that was like another blow because we had convinced ourselves everything is going to look at her. She's fine. Mm-hmm. And she is fine. Right. And she has Down syndrome. She's fine. And she has a, a, a designation of Down syndrome. She's very healthy. Fortunately, in our case, she hasn't had to deal with a lot of the medical things that others have. Yet she deals with all the, you know, some of the delayed speech and, and learning some learning disability stuff that many others do. Mm-hmm. And she also exceeds in other areas. Like she can run my house without me being here because she's so meticulous with her routines. She could do the laundry. She could feed herself. She could be here on her own if we all go down. And for me, that pride for her being 14 gives me a lot of hope because I have to think about who's going to take care of her when she's older, right? Right. So to see her thrive in those ways so early, I know, okay, we're just going to keep going. We're just going to keep going and and she's going to have the life that she wants. She's living it right now. Amazing. Living her best life. Living her best life. (laughs) Your other children. Yes. Tell me tell me a little bit about them and the relationship that they have with okay. their sister. So Bianca, my princess pregnancy baby results. <laughs> so she's 17. And, um, you know, it's kind of cool to have watched her be the big sister of Desiree. She, for so many years, she was just so helpful and, you know, always patient and all those things, which, of course, you want to see in your kids. They always got along. Um, it's probably when she was about 15. We had a real heart to heart and she admitted that she knew when her sister was born that something was wrong. She was only two and a half, but she knew something was quote unquote wrong in that she could feel stress. Now she can put the words to it, but she didn't know what it was when she was that young in her parents. She felt like there was all this like appointments and like something, something Desiree, and she could feel the tension between her parents she saw us fight a lot during that those you know early years of her sister's life. And she said it was hard on her because she felt like she couldn't really say what she needed because she didn't want to be a burden. She was feeling that at three. I'm really impressed that she like has these memories that strong. Like, I mean, kids do start forming memories that young and there's times where myself, like if I'm, if I'm having a really bad week, like for example, we'll take COVID during this whole COVID mm-hmm. lockdown thing. I mean, everybody was stressed. It was, it was an entire world tension. And all I was trying to do was not show that at home. You know, I was trying to, mm. like I was, I was honest with my kids and we talked about, you know, why they're not going to school and why they're not doing their activities. And we would discuss it, but I was you know, trying to be very optimistic. I'm also sort of the the optimist in in this relationship here, and it was <laughs> it, we were just doing what we had to do and getting by and doing the homeschooling and 
I just remember I continuously was saying like, I don't want them to feel adult problems. I don't want them to feel adult stress because they're old enough to remember it. And now like you're confirming your two and a half year old, Mm -hmm. three year old daughter remembered how stressful it was when her sister came home. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. crazy. She, she remembers that. And I was blown away. I was pretty emotional actually. Um, I felt guilty. I definitely felt guilty. We were trying so hard to shield her and protect her, but we were also trying to survive. We had no idea how to do this thing. Mm-hmm. Like we're still, we were still young, new parents to the whole game of parenting, much less now to have a child with a special need that you can't tell us what they need. You know, like, is she in pain right now? Like what's happening? Oh, this looks similar to Bianca, but oh, this looks so different. Like, what do we do? Um, all these appointments, all these people coming to the house. I had a cranial sacral therapist who was coming to do home visits and treating her. You know, she was in speech pathology. She was in OT, physical therapy. There were so many things um, in the early years. And I was even teaching parents, uh, other parents who had kids with Down syndrome babies in a group that we were in. I was teaching them infant massage. Like, this is what I do for infant massage on a typical baby. And this is how I've modified it for Desiree. Oh, your baby had open heart surgery. The first week they were born, okay, this is how you're going to modify for that because their their tissues are healing here and this is what you want to do. I was learning so much on the fly and trying to keep it all together. Um, it, it broke my heart to feel like I let Bianca slip a bit during that time. But the healing that came from her being that vulnerable and sharing that and able to articulate it two years ago really impacted how our relationship is now. I re- recognized that I needed to, A, not lean on her too much for the responsibility of caring for her sister. Like that's your sibling, but I need to remember I should treat Bianca like it's her sibling is like any other sibling. And I should treat Desiree like Bianca is like any sibling or else it's not really fair. We're the parents, we parent and we hope as sisters, you love each other and support each other. But we also get that siblings go through their ups and downs and, you know, they're not always going to be uh, accessible <laughs> or even interested in what their sibling is into. Right. So, to, you know, saying all that, Bianca has just landed in a place where she just gets to be herself after letting that off her chest. Um, I saw a big difference in just her being able to show up and be authentic um, in that relationship. And, and they do their independent thing. Now, my baby, Kalea, she's 11. Her and Desiree have really grown up almost like twins. So the blessing of this, and as I told you, my number one and my number three were like kind of surprise babies. Like we were just in our groove and wow, we're pregnant. Our third one, uh, she came along and I, when I was pregnant with her, I was initially devastated. I was so terrified. I cried when, when we found out we were pregnant. My husband was like, what's wrong with you? I said, this is so unfair. How are we bringing a third child into this when our hands are so full? with mm-hmm. Bianca and, and Desiree and her needs and da 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 like that maybe this is us being really irresponsible and he said maybe Kalea so here's Dwayne now flipping and being ultimate uh optimist he said maybe Kalea is exactly what Desiree's gonna need she needs a partner in crime she needs someone underneath her to kind of hold her up because Bianca is like so brilliant and so advanced she's up here pulling her from above I'll never forget when you said those words, me bawling in the bathroom after getting this positive pregnancy <laughs> test. And, and he was absolutely right. Kalea and Desiree, we've called them the twins for years. They've only now kind of moved into their own realm at 14 and 11. 
you know, Desiree just started high school and Kalea started grade seven. And they're now kind of formed their own friend groups and, and thing. But for years, it was just the two of them together, sharing a room, doing everything together, playing together. And it has helped them both. Kalea is so compassionate. She teaches people about Down syndrome. She'd be on FaceTimes with her friend and say, yeah, that's my sister Desiree. Yeah, she has Down syndrome. And they're like, what does that mean? And she's like, well, it means that she communicates a little bit differently. She is so funny. I mean, she does this and she does that. You know, say hi, Desiree. Desiree says hi. And they go about their day. I love that she's teaching children so young, right? Because so young. it's it's something that I think a lot of parents don't think about. And I, I've seen a lot of talk about it on kids Facebook. Are smart. <laughs> kids are well, kids, kids are, are Kids are so brilliant. Everyone shies away from doing stuff with the kids because they're like, uh, they won't understand. No, kids fucking get kids, shit. Yeah, they understand. They get it. And like I, I see all the time on Facebook, as I said, I have a lot of friends and clients who have children with special needs. So I see a lot of like the calls for, you know, parents, educate your children to understand, you know, why so-and-so in their classroom uh, communicates differently or why they need to have time apart from everybody why you know they might get overstimulated like these type of things yes. that kids are going to look and be like why does that happen and you know they might come to their parents and say you know why does so and so in my class do this and I don't think parents always do the best job but the fact that you're <laughs> 11 year old and I'm not saying that oh, to yeah. shame any parents I think it's they might no. not know what to say right if they've not had experience with um with children with special needs, but having right. your 11 year old teaching her friends like this is my sister and this is why she does this, but this is all the things yeah. she can do. Like that is so cool. Um, I wanted to so actually cool. talk about you were saying you cried when you got that pregnancy test with the third baby. <laughs> I just read something a couple of days ago and you just reminded me of it. So I just pulled it back up on my phone. It was a scary mommy article. Um, oh, I love those. Yes. So I read one about why the third baby is the luckiest. Wait, wait, wait. It's it's, it's what? What? Scary, you... scary mommy. What is scary mommy? It's a website where it's it's like a it's like a like Huffington Post kind of thing where people can just write things and gotcha, gotcha. Buzzfeed, mm -hmm, you know those mm -hmm. things. So scary mommy is all about parenting, and so this article was why the third baby is the luckiest. And you know we talked about only being given challenges that you can handle, and you know when you look mm -hmm. at things like you know I'm the right person to do this. Well, um, this article was about you know your first baby. When you have your first baby, it's a giant experiment. You have no idea yes. what the fuck you're doing, right? You're a disaster <laughs> all the time. You even afterwards might look back and say, I did not appreciate that as much as I should have, because in yes. the moment, it seems like this is my life forever. I'm never getting beyond this. Right. So I know That's with right. my first I you called yours like the princess pregnancy or it was a princess pregnancy. Mm -hmm. Right. I that, called my yeah, I, I called call my first baby, uh, my unicorn. She still is my unicorn because yes. babies aren't like the way she was. She was just so yes. wonderfully easy. And I didn't appreciate mm -hmm. it when I was in that moment because mm -hmm. I was a first time mom and I was learning as I went along. So when the second mm -hmm. baby comes along, that's when they say, <laughs> you know, you you start realizing things like the kid will be okay if they go to bed, a, a, you know, at a bit of a later time or, you know, they don't yep. eat everything organic or, you know, like things that's like that. Right. right. So the second time you start getting you kinda, flexible. Yeah. You start getting to be a little more peaceful. Right. And so mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. my case, for example, my second baby was colicky. I was also taking her to all these appointments. I was doing craniosacral. I was 
doing chiropractic appointments. Mm, I was doing infant massage and I was taking her to my naturopath, everything, because I am of the mindset that there's a reason this baby cries all the time. It's not just Mm -hmm. we're going to call it colic (laughs) and wait until it plays its course. Although ultimately, ultimately, I did have to let it play its course because everything I tried was unfortunately not the magical solution. But anyway, she got some great work done along the way that I'm sure supported her everything nervous system everything absolutely yeah absolutely so the the point is the second baby you're you know is is getting sort of a better version like I remember saying to a ton of people if this was my first child I don't know what I would have done so the second time although I had a more challenging newborn I was calmer you know, like I would take mm-hmm. her out. I, I remember this one specific time being in line at a Costco and she's losing her shit. Like it was just me and her. Her sister was at school and I'm in line at Costco and she's freaking out. And there was a couple in front of me that said, do you want to cut ahead of us? And I said, whether I go first or second or third, she's going to scream. Don't mm-hmm. worry about it unless it's bothering you. Like, I, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I was just mm-hmm. and I think if yeah. it was my first, I would have left the cart full of groceries and beelined it to my car. Right. I was like, yeah. you know what? She's going to scream. This is what she does. She screams when her eyes are open. She screams. Um, and then baby number three is when you're just a pro, you know, like mm-hmm. you've already kind of figured out how to balance two schedules. Adding in a third almost doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Once the kid comes, you're like, yeah, it's fine. Everything's fine. Yeah. So anyway, I just it, I got reminded of that when you said you kind of cried with the third pregnancy because every time that Mark and I have even discussed the possibility of having a third, I'm like, oh, I don't know. I don't think I can do it. But I know I'm if it you, did happen, could, yeah, if, if it did to. happen, you absolutely could. If it did happen, I would embrace it and we would figure it out because that's what you do. You just figure it out and you actually realize how much easier it becomes. I know some mothers are probably saying, are you out of your bloody mind? It doesn't get easier. I'm going to go get snipped. But it 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 becomes easier in the sense that you're such a, you become such a pro at this parenting thing. And I think a big key is you realize everything is a season. Everything is a phase. You'll make it through this. Like, it's not your life forever. So as you're talking about exactly. Desiree now at 14, she's 14. Yeah, she's like, 14. You know, everything you had to deal with when she was two, that's right. it, that's not an issue anymore. She's this independent 14-year-old. An and, you know, you made it at through all. those those toddler years and the speech delays and everything. And now she's this wonderfully mm-hmm. independent 14-year-old. And you're like, cool, I did it. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, there's more to be done, but it's it's like you exactly what you said. It it the third was so much easier. I mean, she likes to tell me all the time, why aren't there like print more printed out pictures of me? <laughs> Where's my baby book? You, like, you don't have one. <laughs> and and all that surviving, I kind of like was just so happy that you were happy and laughing and bouncing off the walls and growing that I was like, forget that shit. Like that that's wonderful, but it was not the priority. Whereas first baby, you know, the book is like laminated. The book is in gold chrome hanging yep. up in the wall. Yep. So that that's the only sad thing about the third baby and probably the fourth and fifth and sixth is that it's just harder to keep up with those small details, but they also don't get as much pressure put on them. I think my oldest felt this pressure to be that as you called unicorn baby, because she the pregnancy went well and she was just so amazing as this kid. That's also a pressure in itself that we Mm -hmm. have to be careful with as parents because they feel it and they definitely see it when they start seeing siblings and how we treat them differently, even though we don't 
think we are. Yeah. They're individuals. So we, we respond to them differently because they are different. Yep, we absolutely. love them the same, but, they, but they're different. They're different. Yeah. Wow. Well, now that I have all of this information about you that I had no <laughs> idea about, um, mm-hmm. let's talk a little bit about how this has changed your practice over the last 14 years like you've you've alluded to it a little bit but you know I'd love to talk about that now yeah let's talk Mm -hmm. about that what things have you incorporated what you know what type of clients are you attracting now let's talk about that okay so when I as we went through in detail how I personally received all that and processed that I realized that my gift for because I had a small perinatal practice at that time but it wasn't like my focus focus yet until probably after Desiree was born. Um, And that really happened because I realized how much of a power I had as a massage therapist in that one hour space that I could create for pregnant women of all kinds. I figured remove any complications of pregnancy, like high risk and or any complications with the baby. Pregnancy in itself is this marathon of many competing things, especially this day and age Most of the women that I know who are pregnant are working or going to school. They're working and building themselves up as an individual, as well as growing this life. And if they don't already have other kids at home, um, that alone is hard. But then you also add in maybe they already have one or two at home and they're doing all these things. It's hard. It's so much harder than we talk about. And I started creating that space where as much as we are not uh, psychotherapists and we are not doing psychotherapeutic work, I know that the work that I do hands-on in the space I create has a positive effect on their psychotherapeutic space inside of them. Right. Because they can talk, they can share, they can release. Um, And so that's where I started to take it. And because I had, you know, the luxury of teaching and being in the hospital and learning a lot of things on the ground, being a self-taught perinatal therapist in a lot of ways, um, thrown into the fire, it increased my skill set. So people who would see me for massage would always say things like, I had a pregnancy massage before and it didn't feel like this. Like mm-hmm. it didn't feel as effective. Or I noticed the way that you drape, you were accessing those areas in my lowest part of my back and curling around to the front of my hip, kind of in that iliac crest area. Like people don't usually treat that. They were afraid to go there. Um, you know, oh, you're working in my inner thigh over here. Like I was told I couldn't even have massage there. And so there were all these myths but... that I kept... Your adductors are so freaking tight when you're pregnant. You want to work. (laughs) So this is all like in the early 2000s, right? This is the stuff that I'm hearing. And I'm like, no, I'm going to work on them. And this is what I understand to be true. And this is what my studies are showing me in terms of case studies being my patients. Um, I had, you know, the training that I had received in school. And then there was what I was learning on in the field. I think where it then took me was realizing that I needed to teach at a higher level in the pregnancy program that I was teaching at the time at uh, Sutherland Chan to help therapists be empowered to understand that as a pregnant person, you are not this little fragile doll that's going to break. Yes, you need to tailor the treatment to the individual, mm-hmm. of course. And you have to look, look, look at their health history and their, and their entire profile, but don't go into it expecting that you cannot treat the back, the low back. You cannot touch this part of their ankle. You cannot (laughs) because you're doing a disservice and you're also training pregnant women out of doing self-care because they're feeling like when they do, they're getting a shit massage. And that's what led to, you know, the other part of my career massage and teaching, which was the, the postgraduate training 
that Nicole Alfred, once known as Nicole Nifo, my business partner in perinatal massage therapy education, that's what led us in 2015 to create an education company for RMTs. We were really focused at the time on Ontario and Canada, but our business has now attracted a lot of international eyes. Um, but to learn how to be confident, effective, and really see themselves as someone who's a part of the perinatal care team for pregnant women. It is huge and it's it's underused and there's not a lot of therapists out there that just openly share share that this is what they do and they're confident and can take people into their practice. The to confidence do this kind of is really key. Um, so I do, like I said, I, I have a... Um... I, I'd like to focus on perinatal and I've been doing it more and mm -hmm. more and more throughout my almost 10 years as a RMT and definitely Yay. more once <laughs> I, once I had my own kids, I like you, yeah. I was thinking about all the holes and all the things that I wish I would have been able to receive in therapy. So mm -hmm. I want to touch on a mm -hmm. couple of the points you talked about when you were talking about um, creating a safe space and yes, we're not doing psychotherapy, but to, to have the space for people and their mental health. Um, just mm -hmm. being that you were so focused on perinatal and everything you were doing was with the intent on helping pregnancy, I can definitely say that that's going to have an impact on their their mental health. Because as a pregnant woman, what are the things you're hearing all the time? Oh, it's okay as long as the baby's healthy. Well, fuck no, it's not okay as long as the baby's mm -hmm. healthy. I am a human. I matter. And <laughs> yes. if I am not healthy, then no, it's not okay. And I mean, people say these things with the that's best right. intents because they don't know what else to say. Or things yep. like, oh, you look great. You don't even look like you're pregnant from behind. What the mm -hmm. fuck does that even mean? The baby carries in the front. Of course, like, you know, focusing so much on like, their, yeah, I don't yeah. look like I'm pregnant from behind. And you could only imagine what my low back is feeling because this baby is like not even in my torso. It's all the way right. out here in the imp like yeah. It's, well, that's yeah. what I mean. It's just having a therapist who understands like the mental state of a pregnant person. You know, nobody really you almost feel literally like a house for a baby sometimes when you're pregnant mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. nobody's asking how you're doing. It's more like mm -hmm. all about the baby. And again, I get it. It's not with malicious intent, but you kind of become just this home for this baby that you're creating. Plus, as you said, people don't want to talk about how difficult pregnancy is because they don't want to appear to be complaining and because everybody does it. And, you know, I don't want to be that mm, whiny pregnant yep. woman. However, you actually you're making a person like, can we just think you're about that for a second? A human you are creating being. a fucking person. You're allowed to be fucking grumpy. And you, you, were, you were wonderful. While I was pregnant. Like you, you dealt with all the How shit. How did you and handle he, this? How he, did you handle he was, this he was amazing. I mean, Stayed if, clear is what I, did. <laughs> I wasn't that bad. I worked just, all the I'm way through, but I just mean like whatever you, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. Whatever like that's all. Yes. But you know that's what? My husband says, Whatever you want, babe. But, Whatever you need, babe. But tell me what you want done. <laughs> yes. Don't expect yes. me to read your mind because I don't do that yes. very well. And I definitely don't do that very well while you're, while you're, well, you know. While you're pregnant. Exactly. Well, and yeah. that's why communication, exactly yeah, communication was really important. And I think that we do that fairly well. I don't speak in code. If I want him to do something, I will just say, do this. You know, like I, I remember saying to somebody who was complaining about, you know, my husband doesn't help and, you know, at, and evenings are so hard and then I've got to wash the dishes and bath the kids. And, blow, and I was like, why? If both of you are there, when we mm -hmm. finish dinner, I say to Mark, do you want to bath them or do you want to wash the dishes? Like it's mm -hmm. one or the other. I'm not fucking doing all mm -hmm. of it. So which mm -hmm. one do you want to mm -hmm. do? I'll take the other job, I'll you know? dishes. Just like, yeah. <laughs> you think dishes. But, you know, back to what you were saying there about um, 
just that creating the space for mental health and that you matter. I love that you said that. Yes. Because and we are not just this container. Exactly. That's there for the sole purpose of growing and building the human being. And this container gets no love, gets no attention, gets no support, doesn't do anything for itself and only is focused on the baby. Yeah. And even once the baby is born, I mean, I was very mm-hmm. lucky. I had the most amazing midwives. Like I literally, mm. I would literally have another baby just to go hang out with them again. You can just be friends. I I think, that's, I think that's what I did. I think that's what I did with number three. You see what I mean? I loved them so much. Third birth, we're with we're with midwives at home. Yeah, and so I did it the second time. Yeah, and so I'm having... pretty sure if you just called them up and, and explained that to them, they'd be like, "Let's just go for let's wine. Just, let's just go have tea." <laughs> yeah, they were they were really awesome. So, like I said, like, I, I need another birth to attend. I had a lot of support, right? Like I said, I had Mark, who was very supportive. I had my midwives, yeah. who are very supportive. There are so many women. And I, you know this, Michelle, because this is what you do. There are so many women who are possibly single mothers. You know, they're doing mm-hmm. this alone. They might not even have other birth partners. You know, they might not have siblings yes. or parents or anyone to be with them. So they're literally yes. going into this all alone. And if they do have other children at home. So now, as you said, they're working because they have to. They're yeah. the sole provider. They are taking care of their other children. And I mean, yes, pregnancy is hard on everyone. But being able to come mm-hmm. into a space with a therapist who understands and is there to take care of you. Yes your baby Mm -hmm. as well but we're here to take Mm -hmm. care of you and want to make sure you're doing okay are you comfortable are you getting enough sleep you know what's bothering you what's hurting and just really focusing on them because as you said we don't get that a lot as pregnant women I worked all the way through both of my pregnancies and it was it was fucking hard and again I sometimes felt like I can't say that especially as a massage therapist right when you have the client coming Mm -hmm. in saying oh I feel bad you gotta be like no I'm good I'm fine I want to I want to vomit a little bit but I'm good let's just do this massage right you're like totally trying to convince them because of course they also care about about us and I remember that happening where one of my clients actually said to me I feel like we should just not do the massage and like you should just lay on the table beside me. We could just spoon and we could just <laughs> chat. And I, I thought, oh my gosh, is this the worst day of my life or the best day of my life? Because I'm kind of tempted. I'm really tempted. Anyways, we did the massage, but at the end of the day, they see you and they know that you have needs. But something you said, Amanda, about you know the safe space again, I don't know that I mentioned it, but I'm also a doula. So like, this is me again in all my 10 job. I just have to throw another one in there. So being a doula, RMT, who's focused in perinatal, who's also an educator, who's also a parent of two typical kids and one with a special need. How do you leave all that you are outside of the door and only come into your massage practice with just one skill of hands-on therapy? You both know, because you have multiple training, multiple skills, multiple assets. I got at least four jobs. So yeah, I get it. You have have at least four. (laughs) I have at least four jobs. (laughs) You You can't separate. So what was happening is in my pregnancy treatments or in my massages, I can't leave that I'm a doula at the door. So when somebody's telling me, oh, you know, I don't know if I should have this test done or that test. And I'm like, well, I can't advise you as to what test to have done, but do you know what the purpose is of that test? Mm -hmm. And they're like, no, my obstetrician didn't even tell me. That's often where I can just advocate for them, almost in my doula role, where I'd say, well, this is what I understand. And you can look it up and you can do a little bit more research or just go back and ask your obstetrician about that test. Don't just feel like you have to take what they said and then have questions and leave confused. You don't have to do that. Or someone would ask me, what about midwife versus obstetrician? I'd say, okay, well, in my experience, I've gone with an obstetrician for my first. This is what that was like from the appointment lengths 
to the what it was like at the birth. And this is what it was like with my two midwives with planned home births and this whole experience. And it's just me being able to be a wealth of knowledge in terms of my own experience and then being able to to share because it's now 20 years. Like it's been a lot of patients who are pregnant. That's all that I pretty much treat now pregnancy postpartum and kids yeah and in my practice now the confidence is going to come through and again as a person who has had children i can tell you having a therapist that i know isn't afraid to touch me doesn't think Mm -hmm. that what i'm dealing with is a disability you know when you're pregnant it's not a disability disability. so you know you can still (laughs) treat natural occurring state of wellness like man my my feet are my feet are fucking killing me please touch my feet oh no we can't i'm like yes you can um but yeah i'm also a doula and I can say that I've had I have a client actually coming in right after we finish. That's what I was saying. I've got a client mm-hmm. after um, she's coming in today with her infant. I treat both of them Wonderful. and uh, I treated her all through her pregnancy. I treated her leading up to her pregnancy and when she gave birth she actually sent me the most beautiful thank you card and I, mm. I didn't even really I, I remember saying to her like I didn't do anything. What are you talking about? She's like what do you mean you didn't do anything? I would have had no idea what questions to ask my midwife. I would have had no idea to even look for a midwife. I wouldn't have known when I was supposed to contact like she goes you have no idea the amount of support and just comfort knowing that like I could come to you and ask you questions and get information and I trusted and I was like wow that is like the nicest compliment I've ever received from a client and it was just wow. about as you said creating a space. She came in she felt very comfortable here and also um, having the confidence like I would tell her like this is again as you said this was my experience and this is what I know but do some research and she said even just you telling me what to read and what books to recommend and it was mm. yeah it was a really it was a really nice compliment and so yeah she's still my client and I'm treating her and her I love that her infant baby today that's the magic sauce I mean I love doing family visits like I always call those family visits when I have my mm-hmm. my pregnant patients come in or my postpartum patients come in with their their new baby. Sometimes I have like three or four people in there, not these days with COVID, but, um, you know, pregnant mom, uh, two other kids are sitting playing something in the room and I'm yeah. treating her or newborn and the two other children that were there before, whatever it is. But that is the magic sauce because it creates the opportunity for her to take care of herself intentionally, mm-hmm. not because there was some fall down the stairs or there's this great extreme pain, which sometimes there's that too. Um, but intentional self-care, proactive empowerment in your pregnancy and in your postpartum, which I see the results impacting how they relate to their kids and how their kids relate to them because mm-hmm. they see them as people. They see the parents as people and the parents are really connecting to their kids as just people, not good baby, bad baby. You know, colicky baby bad and the quiet baby is like we were calling princess and unicorn. It's like it's just they're just themselves. And it's who whatever they are, like let's stop making it about us. It's because we're calm. That's why they're calm. So when they're like screaming and like having complications, then we also, as Mark said earlier, it's because we're something. Because how do we go one way? We have to go both ways if we're making it about us. But instead we can just be with what is, be in the flow of it all. Yeah. And that's what saved me being in the flow, finding a flow and surrendering to the sense of control that I felt I needed to have. That's what my pregnancy with Desiree taught me and then her early years. And now that's why I'm empowered to teach women how to have a flow birth and beyond. That's what I I teach them. Be with what is. You can't change the diagnosis. 
if you have one, but you can shift your mindset in terms of how you experience the diagnosis. And you can make your baby just that, your baby, not the baby with the diagnosis or the diagnosis on the baby. It's whoever that person's going to be. They were going to be who they were going to be regardless of Mm -hmm. that diagnosis, right? So it's been a very interesting time in my in my career like over these years but definitely coming into this 2020 and and all we faced with covid because all of my dreams of the things i wanted to combine in the work that i do in the treatment room and outside are literally happening well that that was such a perfect segue they're they're literally happening so now you're an author i'm an author you're an author and and you know what can i tell you i'm gonna brag right now i'm a number one amazon best-selling author in the massage category. So our book, March 20th, when it hit, within a couple of days, was number one on the bestseller in Amazon, above books like The Trail Guide that we all studied from in school. I could not believe it. I could not believe it when it happened. Well, that's incredible. I mean, this sounds like things are really coming together for you. Um, I want to hear about what your book is about. I mean, I know what the trail guide's about. Tell me what your book is about. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, our book, not like the trail guide, it's an anthology. And I say our because in total, it's 30 health pros, um, professionals, healers, and myself, so 31 of us contributed uh, a 2,000-word chapter in this book called You Have So Much Potential, Inspiring Generational Healing and Transformation. And the book is really um, a tribute to all of our clients and patients, however you refer to them, uh, the people who have trusted their health and their healing with all of us, um, have inspired us to step deeper into our own personal healing. Um, the book also shares the things that we as healers deal with sometimes in our day-to-day life that, of course, our patients would never know anything about because, of course, you know, you both know as professionals, there's only so much we're going to share with our patients. We don't want them yeah, to they have on our no burden. idea. They have no idea. They come in here. I was about to say they come in yeah. here and see my smiling face, but that's a lie. Now they only see my smiling <laughs> eyes, but... That's right. How are you? I'm excellent. Yeah. (laughs) The smiling eyes. Exactly. And, you know, it's not that we're lying to our clients when something difficult is happening. We're just directing focus on them to focus on them. Yeah. That is why they're there. And that's why, uh, you know, we're staying in our professional role. But I have to admit, after 20 years of doing this, there have been many times where my regular clients will see me and say, okay, I don't want to get in your business. But, you know, something seems a little bit different. Like, are you okay? And you want to be able to share and you you can only share so much. And I feel like this book really gives an opportunity and a voice to this group of professionals to speak from a heart-centered place about things like learning and studying in massage school while being treated for cancer. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, maybe massaging through grief you know, the death of a loved one and still, you know, working. Um, There's so many different aspects that are covered. You know, what brought people to the different professions they're in? Some people spoke a lot about that because there was either some magical miracle that brought them or there was some huge tragedy that shifted them 
into the work they do. What do I think yours is? Yes, you know, you know my story. I I know Mark's story. (laughs) And um, it was a combination of a tragedy and a miracle. What What I mean by that was he was engaged. His engagement went to shit. He became an alcoholic (laughs) for a little while until a friend said to him, get your fucking life together. And he, in a drunken state, decided I'm going to go into a career. I'm going to go to school where I can meet a lot of girls. So massage school is what ended up happening. (laughs) but uh it it was a miracle because you tell the story so let's always go that route but it it, it was a tragedy yes but it was a miracle because as we know like if you were obviously in the wrong relationship you were in the wrong place and then a tragedy had to happen for you to realize i need to get my life together now look at you you didn't just you didn't just meet girls you met the girl (laughs) (laughs) actually we didn't meet in massage school so false (laughs) you wouldn't have become a massage therapist if you didn't go to massage school it's very true it's very true yeah no that i would have had a really different life you would have had a very it was it was really different because like uh, michelle opened up earlier in the episode you know Mm -hmm. about some life choices that 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 were made and yep. uh, when I was with this particular person, when we first got together, we found ourselves in that similar scenario. And okay. everything that happened, though, was not not my choice, not my doing, mm-hmm. not my choice on that one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it's, I would have, it would, it would, yeah, really different. She's actually no longer on this earth, by the way. Wow. This is how you're telling me the first time on uh, uh, yeah. on Mike. Yeah. When did you find this out? You know when uh, wow. we, we had we had a friend that was he was living out in Alberta and yeah. he recently yeah. came back. Yeah, and I used to hang out with him a lot at that time. So he I, was still in touch with her. No, no, he wasn't in touch with her. But when he came back, it just made me start thinking about because he was our he was the realtor that I used to buy to that get place in your place and, with her. Yeah, and all I the remember. rest of it. Yeah. So when he sort of came back into the picture. And, you know, we were just reminiscing about people in our lives and, and who's doing what, you know, mm-hmm. I just did a quick Google on what this wow. person's doing. Wow. And it was about and that's where you cancer fell? and yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am literally finding this out for the first time right now. I mean, I guess that wouldn't be a topic of conversation that, uh, you know, what your ex doing mm-hmm. now, but still very I, wow. wow i'm in shock yeah, yeah. and and interesting like how things began as you were just sort of talking about where you were in your relationship things weren't well also in your sounds like in your life too with alcoholism and then going into massage and and then finding this place and now like you're amazing doing clearly what you were gifted to do all of that had to happen to move you into this potential, like to move you into your true potential. Well, as you're talking about that struggle that gets you there. Yeah, exactly. As you're talking about this book and how all of these healthcare practitioners are telling their stories and it was either a tragedy or a miracle, we experience the same thing. Everybody who's in here, one of the first questions we ask them is, how did you get into massage? What were you doing before? Mm -hmm. And it seems like everybody's backstory is, you know, something happened to push them that way. So yeah, it's really interesting. I do not I don't really have any kind of miraculous story <laughs> like that, actually. <laughs> it was, uh, I was working in fitness and just actually started to really hate the company I was working for. 
So I quit my job, but I quit my job with no other prospects. And I was very young. I was like 23 and living in my parents' basement because I had just graduated university, like not even a full year before that. And um, my parents were like, okay, that's fine that you want, but you got to get a job. Like you can't Mm -hmm. just hang Mm -hmm. out here. So I just started applying for random jobs. And my intent was to take an interim job, make some money, go travel for a bit and then go back to school and get my master's degree. That was the plan. Okay. That was so the plan. I, yeah, I had my BA in Ken and I was going to go do a master's and I was th- I was leaning towards occupational therapy. And then okay. uh, the job I took, I ended up working at a private college that had a massage therapy program. I met Mark mm-hmm. and um, <laughs> that was it. I never I never went back to university. I never traveled Ooh. and now I'm here. So not, now you're here. I mean, could, is it a miracle? I don't know. Was meeting you a miracle? I don't know, man. I'm also (laughs) one that doesn't feel the universe talks to me all that much, so I don't know. Maybe it does, and I just don't see it that way. Or it's guiding you, and and you're not conscious of it. You're just stepping into your greatness. Possibly. That's it. I actually wanted to ask you something. Um, Mm -hmm. In the very beginning of describing your book, which, by the way, we didn't actually talk about what the title is. Maybe I should let you tell everyone what your book is called. Okay. So I, I was saying it, you have so much potential, right. inspiring generational healing and okay. transformation. Yes, sorry. So, you, so you did say the title. So it was a question about the title. Uh, mm-hmm. That term generational healing is uh, like a buzzword these days. I feel like it's everywhere and everybody's talking about it. And for anybody mm-hmm. listening who doesn't understand what that means, can you break it down a little bit? Okay. And I think that the, this term probably has different meanings for different people, but why I used it is because I took this coaching, this personal development and professional development a couple of years ago, a few years ago. And one of the exercises they had you do was to figure out who, like what you should be called and not like your name, Michelle. Who are you in the world? Who are you in your possibility in the world? Like, what are you about? Right? Which goes far beyond just saying what your name is because your name is given to you at birth. Do you even know who you are when you receive your name? You don't, right? And we did this whole exercise. And what it boiled down for me is that I was generationally healing forward. Like that's my name. (laughs) Everything I do is about not just healing, like I have a cut right now, I want to heal it, but I want to go back and look at the scar. I want to figure out how to heal that. And the healing that you do today, I truly believe the healing I do today has repercussions into the past and into the future. What does that mean, repercussions into the past and the future? So it, it has an impact. So if I think about, for example, uh, sexual assault, experiencing being sexually assaulted. So that's another part of my history, something that I've experienced personally. There's people in my lineage and my family and my, you know, close, close friend circle, but definitely my family who have had that experience, whether they felt like they could speak up about it, whether they felt they could get support for that, who knows, and, and times change, right? But the healing that I do about that now, so the counseling I receive, the speaking up about it publicly, um, you know, I'm a part of an organization, a foundation that supports people who are victims of sexual assault. Uh, that action has an impact on my children's future right now, my Mm -hmm. daughter's futures right now, my own personal healing, and even has an impact on my mother's healing, my grandmother's healing, my great grandmother's healing. Because the stuff we do right now 
doesn't just stay in this bubble of the present moment. Right. So, um, especially because I work so much in birth and pregnancy and perinatal, when I'm working with mama on the table who's carrying baby and we're doing trauma work through massage therapy language and hands-on technique and all of that stuff, that's having an impact on her ability to connect and bond with that baby. That's having a, connect, a connection future for that baby with themselves and the people around them and that household and those siblings. Healing doesn't just start and stop with the person who chooses to do it. It affects communities. Anyone who's connected to that person doing that work, there's a ripple effect. Like I said, I am hearing this term a lot lately, and um, I never really thought about it, that it could have different meanings for different people. But that makes a lot of sense. And what you said, uh, the last line that you said makes a lot of sense. And any that type of healing effect. you do, yeah, it has, I mean, anything we do, period, has period. a ripple effect. Well, this is, that's right. So, so yeah, why? No different. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, the other thing I, I like that you had talked about is, you know, when your clients who have known you for a long time, when they're like, hey, like, I don't want to get in your business, but something's up. Well, we are touching people and there is such a huge energy exchange in what we're doing. And I've had that scenario happen. I am the type of person, like my personality is just whatever is going on in my personal life. I don't bring uh -huh. it into other aspects. Like I will come to work and nobody would have any idea that anything's wrong. But right. there are certain clients that I can be working on them and I feel like I'm acting totally normal. You know, our, yeah, our interactions yeah. are normal. Everything was normal. Uh -huh. And then they'll say to me like after the treatment, like, is everything okay? Are you okay? Mm -hmm. Is something going on? And mm -hmm. I'm like, no, I'm I'm fine. And then I I am also actually a very terrible liar. It's funny because I can like <laughs> I can you know go about my day and act happy and look happy. But if somebody is to call me on it, I'm a terrible liar, and that's when like it's very obvious. So the minute someone says like, is everything okay? I can immediately feel like I'm getting red and blotchy. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm totally totally fine, totally fine. Yeah, everything's good. And I, <laughs> suddenly I don't have words and I'm not speaking like myself, and I'm a disaster. And then they so. can tell some things up and it's like yeah they hmm. get it <laughs> and then there's people who are just more sensitive than others and then i wanted to add another thing another part of this generational healing which kind of ironically happened with this book is that one of the contributors is actually my father and my father is a retired social worker and his focus of work has been trauma in the hospital system so he worked in uh, a hospital in the states for his career and um you know, in his chapter, he's talking about the influence of his grandmother kind of raising him when he was sort of orphaned by parents and how that created this sense of wanting to support and help people, which honestly made him a social worker. And wow. again, there's that generational healing, like the absence of your parents and the impact of that feeling like you kind of didn't belong. And then this grandmother stepping in and creating community and a sense of belonging and self-worth filled this gap that was missing and then he felt like he needed to move forward. I didn't even know this about my father's story until he was writing his chapter. I didn't know the detail like that he went into in his writing that explained why he was so passionate about social work and why that mm -hmm. kind of rubbed off on me and has a bit of a role in the massage therapy that I like to offer people. Wow. Yeah, so it gets pretty deep. Well, it gets pretty that's... deep. That is incredible. I mean, I'm. <laughs> we had another uh, ex kinesial. I shouldn't say ex, but she uh, recently decided not to renew her registration. But she just Which wrote makes a book. Her ex. <laughs> yeah, ex. Um, and <laughs> sh 
I have her book on my desk, which I have to read. But now it looks like I have another. I'm going to have so much reading to do the more interviews (laughs) we do. (laughs) I don't even know how to go to how to go about putting together a book. It fucking baffles me to to Mm -hmm. no fucking extent. Like I I would have no idea where to start, what to do. Can I'm, I I'm, can I tell you something? I have so many people on here who've done who books who have written and books. I'm like so amazed by. It. <laughs> but can I tell you something? Of all these people that have written books, what did they all have in common? They had a story, and you don't necessarily have to be a writer to be like you don't have to be a writer by like career. You know, it's just right. you have a story, right. and you, story. you feel like maybe somebody else would benefit out of it or you even when people start writing books by the sounds of it they don't realize it's going to become a book it's just i That's want to exactly i want to get this story out and yep. you are a super creative I, human I, that's why i'm even more baffled like i know how to compose <laughs> i know how to put together a song i know how mm-hmm. to write a fucking yep. song you know what i mean yeah i and can you know how to put together lessons and yeah you know how to put together curriculum and guess what that's those were the things that i knew how to do i'm a musician too i don't know man so, i would music it was writing for that purpose and it was sort of writing for self who knew that it was ever going to become this you don't have to be a publisher to get published right you know it was connecting with a publisher who loved the concept of what it was i wanted to create and was also in healthcare so she was like wow you know this is the kind of conversation i have with other nurse practitioners and i have with other you know whomever and it would be great to see this book healers on healing healers talking about healing that because is a pretty it is a pretty cool concept. Yeah, it's a pretty cool concept because as you said, like we are here to put our focus on our patients and clients. We're not here to deal with ourselves and it's very easy for us who work in this I've never called myself a healer, but if I'm, you know, lumping myself in there, um it's mm-hmm. very you easy should. for us who work in healthcare to put ourselves on the back burner because when I've got shit going on, I mm-hmm. use work and I'm admitting this, I use work as a distraction because everybody yeah. else has fucking problems. So let me just yeah. hear about your problems and let me deal with yeah. you and I can ignore whatever's going on in my head and clear it out and let's focus on you. And I'm focus really and I'm really good at doing that. So yeah, I mean, the yeah. people who are taking care of other people are the ones that are probably not hurt as much and they don't get to focus on their healing because they're trying to heal others. That's is, that, it? is that a characteristic of... Massage therapists. Is what you're I don't know. I We'd have to take a survey. A <laughs> I was going to say I relate 100 to that, and and so many people I've spoken to, it's a very similar thing. Are you I don't the know person? Many massage therapists who come into it saying, "I want to make tons of money, and I want to just do this work, and bam, 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 bam." It's just going to be like that because most people would they're out of the profession very quickly if that's what they think. There's going to be satisfaction and enough money just doing that. I wonder how many. It's such a weird go because I'm thinking now. Yes, we all want to help, but how much of us do it and and it's not out of it's altruism isn't real. There's no such thing as an altruistic act. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? So even though we're all doing this, hopefully we're thinking <laughs> altruistically, it's impossible. And then how are we many, thinking how altruistically? Many, are we are, just empathetic? And how many of us are very upfront about, you know, I, I'm getting I'm gaining out of this right. you know, emotionally, psychologically. And it's a weird, it's a weird go. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love that. I love that you said that because I had grappled with that too. Like I loved to place myself in the, you're just such a good human being. You want to give to people and that's why you chose this. And as I started doing more self work, it's like, 
okay, maybe that's true, but uh, how much of your self-esteem has been developed, especially getting into this profession 20 years ago? I'm like 42 now. I was just a baby when I entered the profession. So how much of my ego was being filled by getting all this like positive reinforcement from clients saying, I love what you're doing. You made me feel so much better. I feel like I can go deal with my spouse now. I feel like I can go run a marathon now. How much... So there, there is another side to it with every, you know, balance, with every <laughs> compliment. There's also that ego and maybe also that um, self-esteem and confidence and purpose, like you're developing purpose. Purpose, yes. I would say probably almost exclusively every single person I dated before I met Mark was somebody that in some way needed me to save them. Like I, it took it. I recognized like, wow, I'm like purposely dating these guys who are, who need somebody to take care of them. And Mm -hmm. it, uh, yeah, I, it was really bizarre when I realized that I was like, oh, I didn't Mm -hmm. like, I didn't know I was doing that. Um, I wanted to comment really quickly. But is that a psychological ding against you? I can't explain it. Is it like, is it like an, an unhealthy habit, an unhealthy feeling that's being fulfilled through doing something that is really good for other people. I don't know that I looked deep enough into it, but it just, I just made me realize like, so for example, you know, when we were first dating and I said to you, wow, I've never been out with a guy. I can't remember the words I used, but essentially I was saying, I've never been out with a guy who's like, like more intellectual than I am. I was like, wow, like you're smarter than I am. And then I started to realize you're also like, you're put together. Oh, wait, you actually know how to function through life. I don't need to help you. And it was really bizarre because I was like, I'm not used to this. I'm not used to not having to like, you know, teach you how to live. You already know how to live. What's happening here? Is it a psychological ding, whatever that means against? I don't know. But it just, it hit me when I was going out with you that this is a different relationship. I felt more like we were on the same level versus me feeling like like this nurturing caregiver to the person I'm dating. So does that that mess with your identity then it it did in the beginning i told you that i was like well i mean it's still to this day michelle i will tell you because you've opened up about a lot of things so yes. something that maybe a lot of people don't know is that being that him and i are business partners we teach together mm-hmm. we podcast together whatever i still struggle with self-esteem issues like Mm-hmm. doing stuff with him because I look mm-hmm. at him as like, oh man, like you, certain things come so easily to him. You know, if somebody asks right. me a question, I might have to think about it for a second. I might, okay, wait, I do know this. Let me think. Whereas like okay. somebody asked Mark a question and, you know, he could go on for three hours and, you know, teach you an entire curriculum. And I'm like, how do you just do that? And yeah. I shouldn't compare myself to him. But I think again, I've all, I was always with these guys who like, I had to... I had to help them. And when I'm with Mark, I'm like, oh, you don't need me. In fact, sometimes you know more than I do. This is weird. (laughs) And we've been together 13 years and it's still it's still weird. Like there's still still times where like I had to teach one of his classes a couple weeks ago because he was um, speaking at the CMC. So Mm -hmm. I had to take over his class. And weeks leading up to that class, I was like, man, I can't do this. I can't be you. And he's like, you don't need to be me. You know this right. material like, front you. and back. And I was like, I can't. Right. I can't. Like, I was literally freaking out. I was freaking out. And then the weekend came, I taught the course and I was like, oh, that wasn't so bad. It was great. It was great. <laughs> and that, that whole psychological thing really comes back to we all of us in this world, we we do everything for a reason. There's We, we don't do anything 
without some gain. So even those of us who are the nurturers, we, we like put ourselves as the nurturers. We put ourselves as the, um, we're doing that because there's a pay off for being that. Yeah. Right. And it feels good to know that you're the leader. It feels good to be needed. It feels good to, you know, as much as you're looking at that partner thinking, I don't want you to be falling apart. It also felt good to be the person who put it all together. Yeah, exactly. And like I said, it, at the time that it was happening, I didn't recognize that. No, it was, of course not. It was much yeah. later that I was like, wow, like, because I, yeah, anyway. Um, but I, I wanted to like swing back really quick to tell you guys, I read something when Mark was saying he gets baffled by how somebody could write. I read something today and I can't remember exactly what the wording was, but it was a Facebook post that somebody put up about, I fear if I give my, that by giving my children my phone, like, you know, when you just Mm -hmm. give your kid your phone to (laughs) occupy them or whatever, like you're taking away boredom. And the post was something like, are we depriving children then of their creativity? Are we now destroying a new age of like writers and composers and like artists because we're not allowing them to be bored and just do stuff? So when you were saying like, I can't imagine writing, you are so busy developing curriculum and doing this podcast and doing this and this and this and this. Of course, you can't imagine writing because you are never still enough to just sit down and like be with your own thoughts. You're always doing shit. I'm not a writer. And and so I'm amazed by people. But you are a writer because you've written, right? That's all that's, that's all writing is, is to write. I think we put that label of like, I'm a writer once I have been acknowledged in print well, as being an author, but, I, but that's not true. No, no, no. I just mean like, I, I don't have an interest in that kind of stuff. Like, so, so, so okay. for example, as Amanda saying, saying this with, with kids and stuff, I mean, I listen, someone that's called to do something, someone that's got it burning deep inside their soul, it doesn't yeah, matter yeah. what's placed in front of them. They'll find a way to do they'll it. They'll do, do it. I mean? yeah. Exactly. So I don't, I don't think, yep. I don't think that'll make Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right because like I didn't sit around with to lots do of time yeah, you'll just on my it. hands to write this. It took two years and it actually took scheduling time to write yep. and then being totally off schedule and it coming out later than it was originally supposed to and blah, blah, missed deadline. That's what it was all the way until it was done. <laughs> really and truly. But and it's done. Family strategies and different things happening and slowing you down and then you just and then it's done. And now it's done. <laughs> and now it's done. And now it's done. And I've been doing interviews like this. And I've been doing talks and doing online interactions with the book. And there's more to come, especially with other colleagues who are in the book who are doing different things with it, coaching, using it to support coaching and speaking. And so we'll see where where it goes. So you do so many things, Michelle, like as we've already sort of gotten <laughs> into, you know, just one of the head. Yeah, you do all the things. You've got so many jobs. <laughs> I have to come back to the Headleys from the from the living color because yeah, we yeah, just yeah. touched on it in the beginning and just we didn't actually I don't think I actually explained that the Headleys is this Jamaican family who moved <laughs> to the US and where each of the family members like they each have 10 jobs and Except for Byron. when they go Byron's a lazy right? he's a lazy lima being he like him. And, and, yeah, everyone <laughs> says he's lazy because like one job you only have one job and but but it's so funny because when they go into the different environments and they see like typical Caucasian Americans they're like why are you working so much or they think it's crazy why do you have so many jobs and what I really liked about the fact that you had brought that up Mark is because it highlighted something for me that is part of what we were going to talk about, which is like, why would the Headleys strive to have all these jobs? 
And it comes down to basic inequality. Like it comes down to the challenges that often racially marginalized groups face when they leave their home countries and they move somewhere like the U.S. or Canada, England, wherever, and they are faced with disadvantages like systemic discrimination and racism and access to good quality jobs or equal pay compared to other races. So they might have a job, but that job isn't going to pay for everything they need. So they add another one and where they can't get hired, they create a job. Like you see that in the, in the skits, why, you know, we laughed and I related to it so much because I thought about my parents and what they went through when they would have first come to this country and the kinds of ideas that they were instilling in us, which is like, you have to go after things. You've got to work really hard. And, and if it's not coming to you easy, you have to create it. So like thinking about doing multiple things, I grew up with that as a concept in the background, not necessarily as extreme as the headleys, but at the same <laughs> time, I laugh because I, people have always told in my entire career, Michelle, you do so many things. And I said, yes, because I'm more than my hands. I am a freaking awesome massage therapist. I know this about myself, but I'm more than my hands. I, you know, I have this passion for writing. I have this passion for teaching. I have this passion for perinatal and supporting people. So I become a doula. I basically follow where my skills and my passion can marry because then it doesn't feel like work. It doesn't feel like a job at all. Yes. It just feels like me participating in life and like enriching my soul and getting paid for it. I'm so happy to hear a non-millennial say those words. Uh, I used to work with a with uh, a chiropractor who was um, she was quite a bit older than I am. And so, you know, she would like to give me life advice because, you know, when you're surrounded by elders, they like to teach you how to live. And now I understand because I was doing that to people. But she um I remember her saying something along, like, she used to say that my generation was entitled, you know, like that mm. we all thought that we could just be entrepreneurs and create our own jobs and this. And, that. and I was like, I don't, I don't think that's exactly what it is. There might be some people like that, but I think it's a group of people who are realizing what existed when our parents um, we're growing up doesn't exist for us now. Like I know you're talking about something different and talking about racial right, inequality, right, but right. even the fact that you, you know, you realize like your parents instilled that in you. If, mm-hmm. if what you want doesn't exist, make it exist. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't, I don't want my kids to think that the world is like rainbows and sunshine and unicorns. And, you know, if something doesn't exist, you can just, you know, like there's gotta be some, <laughs> some realism in it, but also I want them I want them to think that, but not think that. Like, I don't know. I don't know how to find this fine line. Like, I want them to realize, like, you can find something that you're so passionate about and that you love so much. And I can guarantee you there is a career in there somewhere for you. There is a job that's not going to feel like work. Yeah. Just follow what you like. Because I mean, essentially what I did. something for everybody. When I went to university, I didn't know what I wanted to do. But the only thing that made sense to me, because I loved working out, I was always in the gym. I was a huge gym rat. So it was like, okay, I'm going to take kinesiology because that makes sense for me because that's what I like to do. And just, you know, one thing led to another, led to another. And, you know, I started working in a profession that, as you said, I don't feel like I'm going to work. It's just this is what I do on certain days. (laughs) There you go. There you go. It's amazing. And I was saying, like, just in terms of thinking about inequality and the challenges that people, especially immigrants and immigrants of color will face when they relocate those kinds of challenges create 
this out of the box thinking because you have to for right. survival. Yeah, you have it's to. It's not actually like a choice. It's not a privilege to be able to say, well, you know what? If I'm not making enough here, I can just go apply here and I'm going to make enough. Exactly. It's not always that possible. Um, so often people were layering and layering and layering the jobs. And so the Henleys are thinking multiple streams of income. And other people are thinking, you have so many damn jobs. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it just amounts to the same thing, survival. Mm. And, you know, for me, my contribution is I'm in healthcare. So the place I have to start is looking at things like dismantling systemic racism mm -hmm. in healthcare. And the section that we're in is massage therapy. So how can I use my role as an educator how can I use my role as a therapist, as a doula, basically any arena that I'm on, how can I bring the awareness of the inequality that exists and the biases that exist to help support people in need and educate people around that person to provide the best care, equal care. So how are you doing that? Mm. <laughs> so in terms of the education side of things, um, I've recently been hired as a professor professor at a massage therapy college out here in Durham, nice. in Durham College, and the course I'm teaching is called Health and Wellness, and it's all about teaching the students how to take care of themselves first. So it's not about teaching them about self-care to apply to clients and patients. It's actually starting with them, nutrition, you know, mindfulness, all these different things. And something that I noticed was missing from the curriculum and, and the person who hired me said, if there's anything you feel is missing, please, like, I want to hear from you what you think is missing. And I said, a big part and a huge impact on all of our health is things like being marginalized or oppressed. But we don't talk about that in terms of the impact on our health because people kind of feel like they're just whining if they complain about, yeah, I experienced this, like, overt expression of racism in the parking lot. They don't always come up and talk to you about it. At the same time as massage therapists, I, I would have to say I've, I've heard more of those expressions in my practice, maybe because I'm a black woman and or maybe because massage therapists tend to hear about a lot of random shit yeah, because people true. will deal with something in the moment and then they'll come up to our treatment spaces and it's like they can just be honest and unload it. But it's not always the occurrence. Like when they go to their dentist, are they going to start talking about that? Probably not. When they go to their doctor, are they going to start talking about Maybe not. And um, so I felt like this was an area that should be brought up, especially in terms of teaching massage therapists in 2020, in the climate we're in, how to spot and train themselves, how to work with their naturally occurring biases that they cannot control. We all think we can, contr can control our biases. We cannot. <laughs> They're there. And we need to learn how to identify them. And not be afraid to identify them and then think that we're a bad person for having some judgment, you know, of someone um, and then be able to work with it. So I added in a module that's looking at implicit bias, what it is, how it occurs in healthcare, how it impacts care that people receive and their health, which then has people land in our massage spaces with impacted health due to these things in part. And then we are often perpetuating these stereotypes, even mm. though we think we're helping, right? And I can give you some examples. I, but I, say, I think I need an example. I'm, yeah. I'm with you, but I feel like I need an example. Absolutely. So let's, let's take 
Let's take a very current one in in the medical world that is hot in the news right now. Okay. So yeah. you're you're both aware of a woman by the name of Joyce who's 37 years old, mm-hmm. Aboriginal woman yes. from Quebec, a mother of seven who died in the hospital mm-hmm. not very long ago. While she was in care with this ongoing heart, she had an ongoing heart issue. She also had a known allergy to morphine, which she was given a lot of. Some of the nurses who were on staff at the time were actually heard in the room on her Facebook Live because that was sort of her last resort. She was, she knew she was dying and something was happening and no one was listening to her. And they spoke about her and said that she would be better off dead. They said that all she was good for was sex. Um, there was a couple other things that were caught on tape. A lot of those statements, if I think about them, I have heard in stereotypical ways labeled on Aboriginal people. Yeah. Things around like substance abuse. Sometimes you'll hear comments regarding substance abuse mm-hmm. or definitely around like for her having seven children. Right now we're talking about she's only good for sex. Why? Because she has seven children. So it's like you're taking something that is real about the person. They're a mother of seven. But then now we're somehow making her responsible for being ill and sounded like justifying not giving her proper care. Right. Do I think that those women who were, were caught on tape thought they were probably even that evil to treat someone like that? Do, did they get into nursing to not care for everyone at a high standard? I highly doubt it. No one goes to medical school, nursing school, massage therapy school, dental school to like single out or exclude someone. Of course. But when you're faced with it and you have these biases, these judgments, these unresolved things that you might not even have really realized, or you have, and you just kind of hope and pray that you never get those patients. When it starts coming out in your professional work like that, where you would say that, that is where the rubber like meets the road, hits the road, mm-hmm. that this is like the truth right there. So that's an example from like currently in the news. I have an example for myself um, that I experienced while pregnant with my first daughter in the princess pregnancy and things are going pretty well, but I'm new to the whole world of being pregnant, even though I have a little bit of knowledge and I am relying on my obstetrician to guide me and take me through the process. But I am a little bit woke because I'm a healthcare provider, right? So I'm about, I'm a 30, 32 weeks at this point. And I have spoken to a friend of mine who's pregnant and she says, did you do your GBS test or do you have it scheduled, your GBS test? And I'm like, what's the GBS test? And she's like, oh, it's pretty important. You know, it's to find out um, if you have the strep um, in your system because when the baby's born, the baby would actually contract this through the birth canal. So you need to get antibiotics when you're in labor and they will do this test and they'll find out and don't worry about it. So I'm like, oh, okay, next time I'm in, I'll ask her about it. Then I speak to a nurse. I'm getting closer to my due date. And she's like, what's your GBS status? I'm like, I don't know. I'll I'll ask. So I go in to see my obstetrician who for several appointments before that wouldn't really listen to the questions that I had. I know this is very common of many sometimes obstetricians where the time is limited. The structure set up different than midwives. It's shorter appointments. So often you're rushed through. But the one question she would constantly ask me was, do you have fibroids? And I would say, no, I don't have fibroids. The next visit, 
do you have fibroids? No, I don't have fibroids. On the fifth time that she asked me, do I have fibroids? I asked her, are you not recording my answer in your chart? And she said, well, I'm asking because you know it's really common in like your community. Black people often have fibroids. I said, absolutely, I do know that as a healthcare provider, but I've answered it and I actually have questions that I need to ask you and I don't get a chance to ask you them. So she was like, okay, so this is an example where something that's true, there are higher, usually higher um, incidences of fibroids in black women. So then often it can affect their pregnancies. So that's a real fact. But now because I'm a black woman, the implicit bias is black woman, probably fibroids. And now we can't get off that. And if the thought is that I do have fibroids, then that's going to take me down a certain path of birthing, probably cesarean section, probably more interventions, which is actually not what I want and also not what's called for because I don't have fibroids, right? So this is where it starts to affect the care that you're getting. And then the the kicker for me with this interaction with her was when finally we got to talking about the GBS test, I said... So I'd like to have, like, when are we doing the GBS test? And she said, I wasn't planning to do it. And I said, well, I heard it's important. Uh, why aren't you doing it? She said, because I'm not obligated to offer it to you. And I looked what? at her. I looked at her and I said, what do you mean? And she's like, well, according to whatever, like Health Canada, I'm not obligated to offer it to you. And I said, but if I did have it, like, the baby could potentially get sick and or die, Right. And she's like, well, it doesn't happen in many cases, but yes. So I was like, well, I want the test. I actually had to say to her, I want the test. And then she gave me the the stuff to do it. And she said, okay, you can do it actually on yourself. And when we did the test, it came back positive. I was GBS positive. I did have to get antibiotics. And knowing that ahead of time just makes your birth go smoother. Um, you know, God forbid if I had been planning a home birth, because that would have changed whether or not I would have been able to have a home birth or a hospital birth. Not that I would have had a home birth, obviously, she's an obstetrician, but I'm just saying if it was in a different context. So yeah, her feeling was she didn't have to offer it to me. Why didn't she have to offer it to me? I don't know. I wasn't in her mind. Mm-hmm. But this is another so example of care being so focused on this thing that she was hung up on. I'm a black woman, fibroids, and not, and now we're not actually offering me something that everyone else that I knew of was yeah. being offered. Yeah. Well, I I can't say that I'm well versed in um what I'm about to tell you, this is just, there's a person that I follow on, okay. um, on Facebook. She, um, is a medical doctor and, uh, midwife and herbalist. Like she does a whole bunch of, she, she's got a lot of jobs, this lady. <laughs> and, um, Maybe she's a head. I've, I've been following I her for, I've been following her for a while. And, uh, part of the reason I started following her was I liked her sort of, um, her approach. Like, so for example, I know this is so controversial, but I'll say it. When I was pregnant, I wanted to read myself about vaccinations because of course you've got a whole bunch of people saying you must Mm -hmm. vaccinate, you have to do it. And of course that's what my doctor's saying. That's what I'm saying. But then there's other people that are in my circle that are saying like, you know, read up about it, do some research. So I found Mm -hmm. this woman who has multiple degrees and is a doctor and she wrote a book be a very unbiased book about all of the research that exists and you know what people are saying on both sides and you know so I anyway I've been following her for a while and again in today's climate with um, everything that's going on 
She's been posting a lot about um, statistics surrounding birth because, as I said, she's Mm -hmm. also a midwife. And one of the things she posted recently was the pregnancy related mortality rate for black women with a college Mm -hmm. degree or higher is over five times that of white women. Yes. This and is such that an was, alarming yes, truth. That was very, uh, she posted that uh, at the beginning of July. And I remember mm-hmm. seeing that and I had to read it a few times. I was like, because at first I was like, college degree, what does this have to, and I was like, oh, again, just showing like, we're not talking about like, Someone people who couldn't maybe articulate exactly we're not even talking about people who yeah. can't you know don't have she's american as well so it was like we're not yeah. talking about people that can't afford health care or whatever we're talking mm-hmm. about highly educated black women are still mm-hmm. dying at a rate that's mm-hmm. over five times that of all white women and yeah. i was like i don't even know what to do with this like what what the fuck so and then and the scary thing is that this is like the u.s stats because the u.s collects race-based data and canada doesn't and actually there's a, a lot of petitions going around right now demanding that we start and actually i'm i'm aligned with some health professionals midwives and such who are just starting to collect this data on their own because if you look at the data here it's not that different the experiences and mal- maltreatment or lack of certain types of care happen. Um, I hear about it in my treatment rooms uh, from black women specifically and other women of color. And it it's not documented anywhere. So it almost looks like, well, Canada's probably a lot better. We don't know if we're better at all, um, but we definitely know that there's it's the system is broken everywhere. And it does seem to be that when you are able to articulate there's more of this desire to shut you down. I've been that person. You're hearing me on this on this talk. Mm-hmm. I can articulate myself quite well. And I was sitting there having to debate with my obstetrician, just like how I was debating with you guys, for the care. And she, I basically won her over. After a while, it was almost like, well, if I still say no, like, then what is this woman going to do? <laughs> yeah. But what yeah. if I was, like, bleeding out and in crisis and almost dying and trying to advocate for my care? What's likely to happen? You know, who's going to win? probably not me and it's scary especially as a birth professional i'm hearing more and more about women's experiences right here in toronto in ontario i'm a part of focus groups where i'm hearing about way more at risk in the moment critical situations that are happening during birth and the early period of time postpartum um where i'm like this is happening here this is happening here so what do we need to be doing to fix it? These changes that you are at making to the curriculum, mm-hmm. what is it that you are, what is your intent? What are you hoping to yeah. get your students to get from this? Mark's got a question so, before that. Hold on. Yeah, go for it. Because it. it. it'll go in chronological yeah. order. <laughs> yeah. You wanting to make <laughs> these changes to the curriculum. Mm-hmm. Did you get met with any any resistance for that? So. Absolutely not. I was not met with any resistance. And actually, the woman who hired me said, Michelle, she took a deep breath and she was like, thank God that I've hired someone who's willing to go there. Because you can, as an educator, go into a subject matter. Well, this is a lie, actually. That's me making excuses. See how I was going to do that? I was going to say, you can't go into a subject matter that you don't know. But wait a minute. As educators, half the time you're like learning about something that you didn't know or didn't know that in depth to be able to teach it to someone who knows it even less. Mm -hmm. So that's not true. But when it comes to things like race and gender and ability and looking at discrimination, 
there's a lot of people who are more comfortable not talking about that. And to be honest, I first saw someone model doing this in the classroom. One of my, you know, mentors and teachers I taught with back at Sutherland Chan, Wendy Burks, she used to do an exercise that was actually an implicit bias exercise, but I didn't even have that language. I'm sure she probably did, but we didn't even use that language when we had the students do this exercise, you know, where we would describe random people, often leaving out things like gender or race. And then we would ask them to write down their immediate thoughts after mm. we read the case. Oh my gosh, the things that would come out, right? Like if we mentioned something about HIV, often right away the person would be like, well, how did they contract it? And, and you know, why were they so stupid? Or why were they so irresponsible? And and then they're like, oh my gosh, where did that come from? Like this person's coming from massage and they're saying that they, they've tested positive for, for HIV. So I know what my infectious precaution steps are and I just need to take them. Like, what does it matter? You don't immediately need to start uh, blaming the patient and thinking you must have done something to contract this. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Or like another description and they would decide that has to be a male. Like we would say something about, you know, a sexual survivor of abuse, blah, blah, blah. And they would say, well, I'm just wondering how that woman would feel with a male therapist. And then we said, well, that's funny. We didn't tell you the gender of the patient. Maybe it's a male. Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, my gosh, I hadn't thought that my male patient could be a survivor of sexual assault. Of course they could. Sorry, Mike, you were going to say something. No, there. no, no. Cause I was going to ask, well, the other part, you, you kind of answered it, it the way, mm. the, just, just in your response, but the other part, the other half of my question before you get to Amanda's was, okay, yeah, you didn't get met with resistance, but then I was going to follow that with, do you think that it's because you can't get met with resistance on this topic? <laughs> it's impossible. Someone cannot say, no, you can't do this. Right. It's the same concept right. of like black yes. lives matters, right? right? You can, you can be all of like, I've, I, I, know someone who is dead set against black lives matters the organization right? right but anything and that's what he's majorly focused on he's like you can't support this organization and i'm like well it's kind of a weird go because you can't mm-hmm. like you you can't say you don't support black support. lives matters the concept the ideology right. the movement right, yeah, right? it's you right. can't do that so bringing it up to saying i want to change the curriculum i want to add this piece in did you do that knowing very well smile in your head saying, you know what, you can't say no to <laughs> You me. can't say no. You can't say no. <laughs> you know what? I will be honest and say that I received a curriculum that was already written because it had been taught before. And of course, as an educator, that's always a lovely place to start, right? I, I've taught for many years and there was times that I was creating courses from scratch. So that was a lovely place to start. And then when, when the person who hired me said, and she's also a massage therapist and she's like, you know, a coordinator in the program, she said, Michelle, if you look through this and you feel like there's something missing or you feel like there's something in there that just doesn't need to be there, I give you full reign. Like, look at it and let me know what you want to take out and what you want to replace. And I really heard her call to action. She didn't know what I was going to suggest, but she was really being very honest that, you know what, make it your own. When I came back to her and had this idea, I, you're right. There's a part of me that felt like, you know, if I suggest this, is she going to say, no, I don't think they can handle that. Definitely, you're not going to be met with that resistance today because if we can't handle talking about this now, when the hell are we ever going to be? Exactly. Like, when? So there's that. I don't even think from a bureaucratic, like, red tape Durham College part. I don't even feel from that level, just from a human, like, when are we going to be ready? But when I said it, I heard the sigh in her voice. And this is a Caucasian woman. I heard the breath of like, 
thankfully, someone willing to talk about some of this real hard stuff right now. Term one, year one massage therapy in our program doesn't sound like it's been done before in in the maybe at the stage or at all. I, I would say it so probably it hasn't great. been done at all. It was great. And as I said, I felt even more empowered by my mentor, past teacher, past colleague, who's a white woman, who's the one who led the charge on doing this kind of talking and speaking about things that implied race or implied gender or implied ability and getting our students at that time to think about their reaction. And then to say to them, you're not right or wrong for having the reaction you have. It's perfectly 100% natural that you have the reaction. Now you need to think about how do you think it's possible without training yourself not to take those judgments and have them be floating around in the background while you're giving the massage. You know, you just you just really answered my question. I mm. my original question Sorry. No, that's fine. She you, she just answered it perfectly. Your intent is to make people aware of their biases. And I feel like every that's program, it. every program should yeah. include this type of anti-racism training because again, like you said, people can't control their biases. They're there whether they want to admit it or not. I'm mm-hmm. really really sick and tired of hearing people say, "But I'm not racist. I'm not I'm not calling you fucking racist." But but mm-hmm. there are biases I'm you there. Human. Yes, I'm exactly. You human. That, and this is, it. you know, the there was the person that Mark was talking about who really dislikes uh, Black Lives Matter, the organization. I was trying to have a discussion with him and say, like, forget the organization. That's not what I'm talking about. Let's remove politics. I don't want to talk yeah. politics. I'm just saying if there are people and there are lots of people who are saying that in their day to day lives, they're experiencing this type of systemic racism because it does exist then, you know, let's not ignore them. Let's listen to them. And he kept coming back to, no, you know, systemic racism doesn't exist. Black people are not being oppressed. Like, uh, you know, these people aren't being oppressed anymore. And I was like, what do you mean anymore? And I I kept trying to point out to him the fact that you like him himself, he was admitting uh, racism exists. There's there's racist people. And I was like, right. But who runs the entire world? It's people. <laughs> Humans have to recognize their own biases in order for this not to exist. But it just kept going in circles. He was not getting this. But this is right. what should be in every college because curriculum. Because that's also was, someone that doesn't period. experience things the way other that's people right. do. Well, like, exactly. Like, I, I took, I when, when I was in, I can't remember what year of York University, I had to take some electives. And one of the electives I took was like intro to Caribbean studies. Okay. Okay, I'm, yeah. I'm like, I'm my parents from Trinidad. I'm like, let's, let's, mm-hmm. let's dive right let's into this, this a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Right. And there was one dude in my class, this Guyanese guy, and he used to get so offended. And I was at first, at first I'm like, settle down, man, settle down about this. And then mm-hmm. after I heard him talk about it, I'm like, you know what? You're kind of right there. Okay, and it riled me up a little bit. He would get offended at any point in time. If someone walked, if someone asked him, Hey man, where are you from? Mm-hmm. He's like, what do you mean where I'm from? I'm from, I'm fucking Katie. I'm from here. Yeah. In other words, mm-hmm. implying like mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're different. You're not from you're here. And you, you, wanna, don't, you don't belong here. And you yeah. want to know something? Exactly. It's, it's, I mean, I'm guilty uh, that I used to do that, right? I'd see someone, I think probably even when I met Mark, you know, I looked at him and wondered, oh, you look, you know, you look different. And I probably asked him, you know, where, what's your background? Where are you from? I yep. used to and do I that. And I think everyone on this call right I, now exactly. has done that. I used to do it and my intent wasn't bad, but I've recently mm-hmm. come to realize your intent is nowhere near as fucking important as the impact. Uh, so how someone it. receives exactly. that message. Exactly. If this person that's is like, what the fuck? Like, why? Is like, why are you asking? 
Well, exactly. Like, why you do you care? I don't belong here? Exactly. Is that why you're asking yeah. this? Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And it blew my mind. And ever since then, I'm like, hmm. And then and you start to see all these little pieces. Right, yeah, for like sure. The conditioning, being a black person, I had been asked that from like grade school. That was... Like, and, and of course, I didn't... In grade school, how would I be offended? I mean, even the child asking me wasn't being offensive. They are also grown up in a system where they saw people looking a similar way in their communities. And maybe their parents would have friends and say, hey, where are you from? You look so exotic. Mm. Or where, you know, where are your parents from? So it becomes a learned behavior. So it also becomes a trained, received behavior. For sure. You don't yeah. act up. You don't overreact. You don't get mad. And so then I would find myself doing what you were just doing, Mark, where you're like, settle down. It's almost like, calm down. Like, if yeah. I'm not offended. Why are you offended? And this is actually how systemic oppression works. Exactly. It's like yeah. you you actually are controlled and you don't even realize that you're being controlled because something just is programmed into your way of thinking. That right? word exotic, by the way, it's mm. and it's become it's started to really irk me like and it's something that would have I would have never thought about before because again I was guilty of asking people where are you from and or I would say things like oh your skin tone is beautiful or whatever and it's only recently that I realized like that's fucking weird like why am I complimenting someone on their skin tone something they have no control you know what I mean they have no control over and so what if I'm saying your skin tone is beautiful then what somebody who's darker or lighter whatever they're not like it's it's something that made me realize like oh that in itself is just fucking weird and I should stop doing that and it started I started to notice it because, again, I have mixed race kids. Do you That's know right. how tired I am of oh, where's their dad yeah. from? Oh, the, you yep. know, you they must be mixed because, you know, they look at me. Yeah, I'm, a, they look at you, I'm a pale then... white girl with blue eyes. <laughs> like they're clearly mixed. But I'm so tired of where's their dad from? Yeah. Oh, they look so exotic. I fucking hate yeah. that word now. They oh, they look you, so exotic. Are you putting them in the TV? They should do commercials. Yeah. And again, so we, we just talked about what we know is the problem, but I want to leave on this subject, especially the solutions that I'm working with, because that's, I think, at the end of the day, where we need to put our effort to. Um, I say people looking at their biases is easier than, than them looking at things like whether I'm a racist or anti-racist or whatever. Those words are really loaded and yeah. sometimes it's hard for people. Mm-hmm. So I'm starting off with my group and even with myself. It's like, look at yourself, your beliefs, and your values, and then just acknowledge what's coming up for you. And when you do that, you're taking responsibility and accountability. You're not even, you're doing it compassionately and without judgment. So I'm going to actually take them through in our online class. I'm going to read them cases. The way that I used to do this in class back when I used to teach at the other institution and actually have them write and then share in the group what's coming up. And then I'm going to get them, and I, I'm putting this out there for everyone who's listening, do the Harvard Implicit Association test, the Harvard IA test. You can look it up online. It's a downloadable thing. Um, and you can go into different types of areas, race, um, like colorism, uh, ability, gender, sexual orientation. It basically breaks down all the ways in which we categorize people. And you can do a test and the tests take like less than five minutes to do. And if you're doing them honestly, you're basically seeing an image and you're asked to do something as soon as you see the image and it takes your ability to control the results out. It's simply what your brain is reacting to, what your attitude and your belief is. And it will tell you a lot about what's happening in the background that you need to address 
doesn't mean you're a horrible person. It doesn't mean that there's no turning anything around. It's actually that you just need to know, wow, I favor lighter skinned people over darker skinned people. Well, if I'm a massage therapist and that's in there, how do you think that affects when you put your hands on a very dark complexion person, right. even though you're telling yourself, oh, this person's cool. Like they're nice. They're friendly. You're almost probably telling yourself that even more. They're friendly. They're really nice. They're, they're cool. Overcompensating, they're trying they're to like be their best friend. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And it's like, why are we doing that? I've heard from patients, very dark complexion patients telling me about receiving treatments from a therapist who he said, he described it as you could literally drive a truck between the top of the table and her body, her arms were stretched so far away from me, I could feel no pressure, just her fingertips almost, because it was so clear she didn't want to get near me. Mm. She left like a good meter. Like, you know how we're like practically rubbing up on the table when we're treating and getting into things. We're not. We're I get, not, I get I, all up in your away. space. All, <laughs> all up in, in your space. space. <laughs> I, I said, how? And I said, how long did she work like that? He's like, for the entire <sighs> massage. I actually told her I wasn't feeling well and that we needed to end soon because I felt bad for her. Felt bad that she had to put herself through this. She clearly did not want to touch me. When I heard wow. that, and I think that's everyone's biggest fear when they're on the massage table, no matter what you look like, your race, your build, people hate the thought of being on your table and being this inconvenience who you don't want to touch. Like they're not good enough to be touched and helped and supported. So to hear this man, a lawyer, <laughs> A black man, dark-skinned lawyer of about 15 years in multiple jurisdictions in Canada and licensed in the States. He felt that he needed to end the treatment because she was so uncomfortable, clearly through her touch. And he just didn't want to put her through that. And he I felt was, bad for her. He wow. felt bad. He took it on. He, he knew it was wrong that it was happening. Yet his only savior was like, I just want to end this for us both. Like, let's put us both out of our misery yeah, yeah. and let me end this. So I say, let's do these types of exercises. Do the Harvard IA test. Um, you know, talk with people about your results. Like, don't be afraid to say, hey, like, this is what I scored on the abilities. I'm, I'm yet to do the one for disabilities. I have a child with a disability. I bet you I'll still score pretty poorly on my biases around ability because I'm an able-bodied person yep. and her disability isn't one that shows up a lot in her physical abilities, right? So it's all about what we're conditioned to, what the media shows us, what we grow up learning, what we grow up seeing and hearing. So that's a place that I'm starting with my group and I, I hope to be doing way more in-depth um, especially with RMTs, um, and then and then some more focus in the birth world around this, around delivery and birth and and birth rights, especially for Black women. This is yeah. really really cool. I'm really happy you're doing this, and I'm really glad that you weren't met with any resistance. But as Mark said, I don't know that you could have been or would have been. <laughs> but this is uh, this is just Good something that should be in every <laughs> every curriculum, and it should start from kindergarten like it yeah. because our kids are our, our little innocent children they are not born this way they're not yeah. born with any biases they're no. learning it from home they're learning it from their parents meaning the minute they are in school 
they should be maybe unlearning things or yeah. at least recognizing the shit, not everything that you learn at home, all of that mm-hmm. isn't necessarily mm-hmm. truth. Like it takes mm-hmm. us until we're adults to realize like our beliefs are given to us. They are right. drilled into us. And yep, even they're inherited. If, exactly. And they're subconscious most of the time. So we don't even know what our attitudes about certain things are. We don't know what our beliefs about certain things are. Like these are just things that are in our subconscious mind that were drilled into us from our caregivers, our parents, whomever. And it's not until you're an adult that you realize they exist. So right from kindergarten, kids should be learning about uh, their see, biases. I'm so man. I'm so happy that we live in such a multicultural city. Like yes. I love yeah. I love that my children are going to school with every fucking buddy, everybody. Yeah. I had this discussion yeah, yeah. with someone over Facebook, and uh, she lives w- not way up north, maybe about four hours <laughs> north of the city. But she's always trying to convince me that oh, the living living up life. here is better quality yeah. of life. I'm like, it really depends on what you're looking for. Like I want my kids to grow yeah, up around quality. a whole bunch of other people, right? Yeah. Up 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 by you, where the where the population is 500 people. Mm, I don't. Right. I really don't think. Uh, my kids are going to get it. The nice diversity mix of is exactly. going to be there. Right, the diver- right. d- diversity is huge, huge for me. And this is one area. And I, I don't know if you've ever listened to any episodes where Mark and I joke about he's always saying he wants to leave Toronto. And then he says, but I'm a snob, <laughs> so we don't leave. But when we have serious discussions, that is a major factor to me. Like, for example, yeah. my daughter's three best friends at school none of their her parents none of their parents speak english and mm-hmm. there's something mm-hmm. so beautiful about that to me i'm like you yes. your three best friends one mm-hmm. is vietnamese one is east indian and one mm-hmm. is egyptian and none mm-hmm. of their parents english was their first language they're all right. newcomers within like the last 3 to 5 years to this country and i'm like that's really fucking cool like she's meeting people from all over the world and she's it, it to her it's nothing like they're just she's, and for her this is the norm this like, is the norm actually, this is my friend having, from India. This is my friend from yeah. Vietnam. Vi- this is my yeah. friend it's not from even, Egypt. It's not even that. It's just, this is my friend. This is my friend. Yeah. Like, it's not my friend from so and so. Yeah. It's so right. awesome. And when you get that at an early age, that makes a difference. And, you know, some of the training that I've been exposed to that helps people manage their implicit bias is simply going out, having a meal, a tea, a coffee, or maybe getting on a virtual call because we know how things are right now with someone who's not in your typical peer group. Someone that you almost in your mind would almost classify as opposite to you, that's yeah. the person you need to go and have tea with. And that's what happens when we're young kids and we're in a diverse um, area is that we'll connect with people before we've gotten a lot of these biases implanted in us by, if not our families, it's just all around us. Like it's in popular media, it's in the ways the teachers run the classroom, it's in who gets, you know, the privileges and who doesn't in the classroom. All of those things are training. Yep. So if you're getting those kids to have just exposure, they meet like qualities, like they're inspired by that friend who can do that flip over there. Or that person speaking that other language, they're just curious. Oh, what is that? Or the food that they're eating. Yeah. That smells so good. What is that? This is the way in which we actually are able to really authentically create compassion for others. And when you have more compassion, you'll still have the, the biases. Don't get it wrong. Implicit bias will still be there. But how you will act after that or react to it or will you let it drive you? That's what's impacted when you have more of that exposure. Yeah. And I just don't know when it, like when it actually goes away. I, as you're talking, like I'm both listening to you, but I'm like thinking about myself. I also grew up in a very, like I, I grew up here in Toronto. And when I went to elementary school, 
I had classmates from all over the world. You know, there was all different races in in my class. Yet I feel as we got older and older and older, the Chinese kids hung out with the Chinese kids. The black kids hung out with the black kids. The white kids hung out. Like, when does that, how did that happen? And like, did did we even notice it happening? You know, like I I had a very best friend when I was really, really young who was Filipino. And then, like, as we got older, she kind of hung out with her Filipino friends. Yeah. I hung out with my, like, were we still right. friends? Sure. But how do we go sure. from best friends to... To being these other types of friends. Yeah. And, and this brings up one other piece. We talked about diversity, but we didn't talk about inclusion. And mm-hmm. so many times people put the two words together, diversity and inclusion. Each of them are independent. Diverse just means many different types of people. And inclusion means they're each individual group of people are valued, acknowledged, and, you know, validated as being as equal and necessary as any other part. So what will happen as we're younger, we might see diversity and be like, ooh, intrigued. We're more inclusive when we're kids. Yeah. Before we've gotten that, these things start hanging on us. We're more inclusive. Like, we're curious. We're curious and we will ask questions and we will try things. As we get older, sometimes what happens is people are not feeling as included and they tend to gravitate to other groups where they don't have to explain shit. Mm -hmm. They don't have to have to even bring up the thing that was that unspoken cultural norm thing that happened in the classroom that other people outside of the race didn't get, but you got. And it feels like a breath of fresh air. So there will be some of that kind of connecting. But if we work to make our spaces, education, treatment rooms, um, workspaces, our households diverse and inclusive, it takes away this hierarchy of of privilege and not privilege. It It dismantles the hierarchy of what's the norm and what we're comparing everyone to, white being right and light being right and everything else falling behind. Mm-hmm. It takes that away. So I'm I'm really going to be stressing that as well when this this class comes up um, that diversity is not inclusion. There's two different things. So what are you doing to be inclusive of your your patients in student clinic? What are the, the the graphics in your treatment space? What does your website look like? You know how hard is it for me to find images of peaceful, beautiful black women who are pregnant? Take a search. You'll be searching for a while mm. to find that. That's not the image of mainstream beauty is a pregnant black belly. You have to pay for it to get those images and pay for it now because of the movement, to be honest. Before, you wouldn't have to pay for it. It just was like not even a thing. Right. So these are the ideas that we need to, to keep in mind. What size is our font in our treatment spaces? If someone's visually impaired, would they be able to read that sign about your COVID whatever nonsense? Right? <laughs> So we have to be thinking about everybody outside of our own abilities, our own background, um, as much as we can, and keep talking to each other and challenge each other to do better. I love it. I think <laughs> I think young people got it under control. They really they're do. got a leg up, man. Yeah, like my kids right now, my seventeen year old, she's on fire. They they get and it. I, I kind of wish I was born right now. Oh, I'm seventeen it's, right now. It's the so freedom weird. to really express the. Sh- exactly like as you guys were talking i i just kept flashing back to being in school like uh, i mean i was in elementary school in like the 80s right like the early Mm -hmm, 80s mm -hmm. that type of thing and it it wasn't cool to be culturally diverse 
Like, do you know what I mean? Like, there's no way that East Indian kid was going to come to school, you know, with food that's very culturally identifying him and, you know, cultural, cultural, cultural clothing. It's no way. But kids now, I think that's, that's, that's a whole other ball game. The whole inclusion thing, I feel like is so different. It's true. It It is. It is very different now. It is cool to, to be different. It's cool to like. Yeah, just I, I have a friend who looks yeah. different from you and actually be interested. Yeah. You know, it, it is. It's becoming much more cool and almost becoming well in the school system. I'm seeing it with my kids and what they're bringing home and the things that they're telling me is their teachers are being trained to actually call it out, like actually make it cool, because that's how it's going to make the change. Yeah. Not just knowing it in your head as an educator. Yeah, it would be better if we were more inclusive. But like, how do you demonstrate inclusivity in the classroom in a moment, in a teachable moment? Well, I, I have to give props to my my daughter's uh, kindergarten teacher, JK and SK. She is yeah. also, uh, she's an older white woman. Like when I say older, I mean like she's she's set to retire very soon. Okay. And yeah. she's um, been an educator a while. She's she's been in the field for quite some time. And I remember when I first met her, again, biases, biases, biases. All I did was look at her and I was like, fuck, grumpy old white lady's gonna be her teacher. Like I wasn't feeling too good about <laughs> look at it. The bias, right? Look there. at it. And I mean, fuck, I'm an old white lady. But yet still I was like, damn it. Damn it. Why? But anyway, um she was she was really good at this. Like she, I guess maybe because she had been in the field so long and she had seen so many things but she made it a point to have these discussions in the class so she went out and I don't know if you know that Crayola because your kids are a little mm-hmm. older now but Crayola yes, came out with I a whole heard. a whole palette of different skin tones because when yeah. we were kids the peach color Dude. in the crayon mm-hmm. box that mm-hmm. was what most kids just called skin color that's what you colored that's your people right, right? which is right. ridiculous peach right <laughs> but I mean and again maybe because I'm white that's how it came. but that was I, I even heard like my brown friends my black friends saying skin color like that's what it became right, right? even the, right exactly right. because when you as you said when you were reading books did you see characters in the books that were black and brown and asian no you saw a bunch of white characters on tv it was always white kids uh, cartoons were all white so yeah. anyway crayola came out with this whole palette of different colors to represent different skin tones so her teacher last year brought in all of these uh crayola crayons And she put a big thing on each one of their desks and she gave them pictures of princes and princesses, well-known princes and princesses. And she's like, I want you guys to color them to look like you because they're all white. And I remember my daughter coming home and she was like, yeah, so I kind of use like, like the peach one. And then I mixed it a little bit with the brown one. And I was like, this is so interesting. And I I talked to her after about that. I was like, I just thought that was like a really cool exercise that you did because they use like, you know, all of the regular princesses. It wasn't just random people. It was actual princesses from storybooks that our kids have already read in which they were all white and so I said to her I thought that was really interesting and uh, the teacher's like yeah I'm just so sick of this white shit (laughs) okay (laughs) and you're like see this is it it's like um yeah that educator Jane her first name is Jane I can't remember her last name now Jane Elliott right yeah Elliott Elliott who has been that educator you you wouldn't expect an anti-racist educator to be a white person and yet there's so much power, and if that's your conviction, to be that white person who's speaking that. Because to be honest, you'll get more people listening. You'll also get a lot of people turning their head and saying, well, why is that your fight? And she's like, because I'm an educator. I'm committed to educating. 
And this is something that we're dealing with in the world. And it does affect the classroom. So why don't we deal with it in the classroom? Well, and as a white person, I could say, yes, why why do you care? Like I've had people say, why do you care? Because I've posted mm-hmm. some pretty controversial stuff on my own social mm-hmm. media. And why do I care? Well, because I can recognize that as the white person, maybe people will listen to me. Like I, I will recognize that, yeah, mm-hmm. I've probably been given opportunities because one, I have like the whitest name in the world. Like I've never, my resume <laughs> would never be thrown out because Mm -hmm. the person can't pronounce Mm -hmm. my name. You know what I mean? Like I can Mm -hmm. recognize that. And like, yeah, I've probably been given lots of privileges just for being Canadian born. You know, English Mm -hmm. is my first language, you know, all of these things. So yeah, I do care because I see other people who are probably equally or more qualified than myself, probably not being given a second look because their name is hard to pronounce or because English is their second language or because they're an immigrant. Like it's, it's crazy. And when you have children who are biracial or mixed race, and you are also thinking through their eyes, mm-hmm. they have these two parents that represent different backgrounds and, a, and an overlapping things that you have in common, just being in Canada and, you know, living a life here. You're wanting to see that you're advocating for them. And this is the whole generational healing right now. Like just even speaking about this, that's healing generationally forward. Like even speaking up, that's healing. Mm-hmm. Like I don't have to directly have been affected by that. I don't have to be discriminated against for being hearing impaired because I'm not hearing impaired to speak up for someone who's being discriminated against who's hearing impaired. Right. Why, why do I have to justify naming or pointing out a wrong because I don't classify or belong to that group? Right. And when we start changing that kind of thinking by just continuing to make noise, the people who are the haters will just get tired. They'll get tired. They'll be quiet. They might not change their way of thinking, but at least their negative voice is one less negative voice in the mix. Sorry, I'm not laughing. At yeah. just, I'm laughing at Mark. I he's dropped he's dropping so many things. Like, I'm trying to listen to you, and there's just fucking chaos going on in front of me. I'm like, why are you dropping sorry, everything? Sorry, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that's life, man. You guys are so real. Can't even help yourself. Oh boy! So that's what I'm up to in the ten job. The in ten your ten job, job. I'm not even going to try to do the accent because that would be unfortunate. Yeah, but my, I love mine's it. not even that great. My husband's <laughs> always teasing me about that. He's like, "What? You're, you're Canadian. You're Canadian born, right? Are you Canadian, <laughs> yeah, I'm Canadian born? born? Yeah, I am. I am. <laughs> it happens. Proud. It happens. Although, Proud. although Mark is Canadian born, <laughs> and I mean, you give him a little bit of rum, and when that Trini accent comes out, it is gold. <laughs> it is so gold. <laughs> Yeah, man. I love it. Do you have any other questions for Michelle before we let her go back to her regular no, this scheduled was, life? This was bloody awesome. Thank you very much. I really oh love having you on. Thank this was great. you. Yes, thank, thank you. you. Finally, we so actually got me. to connect. Yeah. <laughs> I know. And I hope when this world gets healthier and opens up a lot more that I'll be able to see you guys in person because it'd be really cool to have a rap session just in person with you. Yes, you should definitely come sit on the couch. I would love to. All right. I know. Thank you. It's been great. This has been great. You guys have been listening to two massage therapists and a microphone. Peace.